us and a lot of people really liked really quick for some of you guys they just joined us and didn't have a chance to listen to part one i uploaded the link on spotify and i probably will attach the link to spaces on the top so you can just go back to spotify and listen to this i am relatively new to quant so a lot of you might not even know me my name is max bosenko and i'm mostly here to learn from all these fantastic speakers one thing to remember is that these events that we're hosting it's just purely for educational purposes only we're not here to give any financial advice Plenty of places already do this, and this is not one of them. So anyway, let me go ahead and introduce this fantastic four for you guys. I'm probably going to start with my co-host, Hungarian. If I would have to think really hard to find another person who would be more passionate about quant than this guy, I can literally listen to him talk about quant uh, for 24 hours straight. For those of you who join us for part one, probably can relate to this as well you know so happy to have you as my co-host Hungarian thanks buddy then we have Ghost I don't think that this uh, there is a single question that Ghost can answer and at least that I'm not aware of it's truly amazing uh, Ghost and Luke um, I think they hosted multiple events uh, they named them Quant Roundtables that you guys should be able to find on YouTube. I personally listen to all of them, learn a lot. So really appreciate all the work that goes put into this. Uh, thanks for joining us, buddy. Really happy to have you here. Then we have Greg. Greg represents Quan community on Clubhouse. I think uh, to this day, he hosted four different events. Listen, if you're new to Quant and you never heard or just wanted to refresh your knowledge about Quant, I highly suggest you listen to all of the presentations that Greg gave. Phenomenal. Uh, love it. So thanks, Greg. And then we have Jeff. I don't think this guy ever sleeps, honestly, <laughs> because I guess he just uh, has better things to do with his time than sleep. He consistently finds all these uh, amazing pieces about Quantate work or any other partnerships available. Just amazing. Really, truly appreciate your dedication, man. Thanks for joining so yeah, that's the fantastic four of Quant. Uh, really happy to share the stage with all of them. Like I said before, I'm here mostly to take notes and learn from all of them. And yeah, so let's get it going. Hungarian, the floor is yours. Thanks, Max. <clears throat> well, welcome everyone. Uh, good morning, good evening, and good afternoon. And uh, thank you for taking the time out of your day to, to be with us. We're all really excited to take this next hour or two and, and really dive deep into what quant is, a continuation of our first series, but also uh, in, in something in that we, we've reflected on, reviewed, and made sure that we have the best quality content going forward from here. So uh, before we get started, I just want to make sure that everyone realizes that this is um, an open event for everybody. And I encourage you all that if you have questions throughout the process and throughout the presentation, just write them down and save them for the end because we will open up the mic for a live Q&A. And uh, all of us speakers here will go through and answer all of your community questions. So make sure you stick to the end, write your questions down, and we'd love to cover them. But um, kicking it off, uh, there's really no doubt about it. We are witnessing history in the making. Um, I think that few in this space will challenge the potential of blockchain. It's fairly clear that this technology stands to revolution. It will revolutionize the world as we know it. But blockchains are flawed. And I think we're seeing a lot of this right now. Um, 
like we see now, blockchain just isn't ready for mainstream technology. It's expensive, it's difficult to use, it's not user-friendly, and it's just not fully practical. And, and while there's a lot of benefits behind using this technology, the way it currently stands isn't something that really is able to evolve beyond niche applications for users that actively seek out these networks to participate in. Uh, and it's a fancy way to say crypto. So how do we get past that? How do we take this technology that has so much potential and move it forward at an internet scale? That's where Quant comes in. Quant is a technology company that's created a true technological breakthrough. Their technology in the, allows everyone in the world to harness the power of blockchain. It allows them to establish native interoperability to connect blockchains for the very first time. And it's laying the foundation for what will and is the next generation of internet. But before we get too deep into what quant is, I want to take a few minutes to go back and to talk about the internet and to talk about networks. Because the internet has a problem. We can't trust it. And we can't trust each other. So instead of addressing that, we found ways to work around. it. We've built trust by establishing entities that allow us to trust each other. We call this cybersecurity. We call this government and law and regulation and all other types of third-party entities that serve to trust and validate data because we can't trust the internet. Um, I think it's pretty obvious to anyone here that you can't go on eBay and just buy some random, or you can't go on Craigslist and just send some random person money and expect that they're going to send you what you wanted because you can't trust the internet. Um, but it didn't actually always used to be like this. In fact, the internet at its core was actually designed in a way to where you knew everybody on the server. And that's a really important point because we'll come back to it later. And it ties into how Quant is really creating the foundation of, of the Internet of Trust, of, of the blockchain Internet, if you will. And to really understand this, we have to go back all the way to 1997. In 1997, the CEO, the now CEO of Quant, Gilbert Verdian, he had a vision for the new architecture of Internet. He recognized a fundamental flaw in the security structure. But without the technology that could properly integrate this, he chose the next, next course of action. Um, he spent the next two decades working in cybersecurity, banking, and government while the technology caught up. And over those next two decades, he worked in almost exclusively um, executive C-level positions, very high-level government roles, um, and just truly just incredible positions of, of influence and experience. And Max, if you're able to throw up um, Gilbert's, maybe his resume or his CV or something, just to, to get some reference points for here for everyone. And... Along the way, he had some pretty significant milestones. Um, Gilbert worked for the Bank of England. He actually secured the entire payment system for the UK, uh, managing trillions of dollars of payments and volume. Um, he's worked with the Federal Reserve, HSBC. He's worked with um, any uh, a whole litany of governments and enterprise and, and financial regulatory environment. And then something happened. In 2008, the Satoshi white paper came out and Gilbert realized that this technology was exactly what he'd been waiting for. He took it at the time to the, um, the UK government where he was working and they had them do um, basically a panel. They looked into Bitcoin and they decided their conclusion was that back in 2008, Bitcoin wasn't a big deal. It didn't stand to be um, anything that would have a material impact on UK government and it didn't seem to be anything that they should worry about. <laughs> not the case, of course. So 
In 2014, Gilbert was the chief information security officer for Northwest Ambulance, a, a private healthcare company. And as the person basically in charge of their cybersecurity, he was tasked with um, the ability or a project to help connect healthcare records. And if you don't know, um, healthcare records are actually a really big um, bottleneck for interoperability right now. Um, healthcare records, of course, are very important, private, sensitive data pertaining to an individual's health. Um, and this isn't something that uh, has or is, is very easy to use right now. If you go to one hospital and your healthcare records are in that hospital, um, at least in the United States, if you want to go to a different hospital, it's very difficult to get your records. They can't just send them over. Um, it also opens up issues with security when we talk about connecting healthcare records. So in 2014, Gilbert solved this, and he solved this by using blockchain. Um, this is actually where Overledger came from. In 2014, Gilbert created a blockchain solution to solve healthcare interoperability. And uh, that later became known as Overledger, or part of it, um, kind of the heart of it did. But after doing so, um, he realized the potential and he was approached by the ISO people. And some of you guys on this call may be familiar with the ISO 20222 standards, the messaging standard, uh, messaging standard. What the ISO people did is when they approached Gilbert, they actually, with him, established what's now known as TC, ISO TC307, which is a global standard that over 60 countries are now using for blockchain. Uh, and that's important because when we talk about the framework and the structure for everything that's going on, um, this really is the leading and like the main structure and, and standard for what blockchain is right now. And it's, it's based off the architecture for Overledger. More on that later. Um, taking this technology, Gilbert then formed one of the most impressive teams across any, um, any project in crypto. It's experienced executives all again from the sea level in, in household names with PhDs and, and technological experts and institutional support. He formed a company called Quant and over the last seven years, they've quietly connected banks and, and distributed ledger technology and enterprise and, and really every major blockchain use case in the real world has it's kind of been quietly connected behind the scenes. We'll dive into what that looks like later and, and why we know that, what's confirmed and and really what and how we speculate later. But this is important to establish because what this is, it really is the foundation of, of the internet. But what's the internet? If, uh, if you guys have ever heard the term ARPANET before, it's kind of the first rendition of the internet. We go back in time and we look um, at the birth of the internet. It actually, it occurred in a, a series of institutions. Um, MIT, along with some other um, educational institutions, were working on a network. And um, after they created their prototype, the military actually stepped in. And well, the prototype was ARPANET. And the military actually stepped in and they adopted it for their own networks and they called it um, DARPANET. And that was kind of the very first iteration of the internet. And the way this worked is it was very, uh, it, was, it was completely centralized. Think of it like um, like a telecom network. You knew you had one singular point of um, validation, one singular point of access, and then this access provider gave you access to their network. And initially, you knew everyone in the network, so that wasn't a really big deal. But as the network grew, the, you, there began to be people on the network that you didn't know. And as soon as there was people that you didn't know on the network, you couldn't trust them. 
And at that point, the internet became not trustworthy. And that's how it's been since. Now it's evolved over time and internet protocols have allowed the technology to grow, but largely it's still the same. Um, in the 90s, something happened though. The internet began to decentralize. And instead of having just one sole internet provider, I um, think you have your, you know, your AOL, your internet provider that connects you to their version of the internet, um, through TCP IP and a few other advances in internet technology, we're able to connect to each other for the very first time. And that's what the dot-com boom was. That's what created the internet of today that we know and is so critical to our lives. Um, something that really just is it's a fairly recent change. About 20 years ago, the evolution of the internet protocols allowed this to happen. And that's how we can have peer-to-peer -peer, um, communication, the internet of information, the internet of data, if you will. But technology continues to grow, as is the nature of technological evolution. And in 2008, something else happened. We got distributed ledgers. Distributed ledgers aren't some type of um, anomaly when it comes to internet and technology. It's actually the natural evolution. Um, and what it does is distributed ledgers at its core, you know, let's, let's get rid of all the crypto, let's get rid of the DeFi and the staking and, and all the fun stuff and, and the opportunity. And let's look at the technology itself. Why is this important? What does it allow us to do? Fundamentally, what this allows us to do is to trust each other. We can trust each other without knowing each other. But there's a problem. Like we talked about, blockchains don't have the ability to connect to each other. They are expensive to use. They are very difficult to pivot. If I'm a company and I want to build something on a blockchain, let's say that a new blockchain comes out that's bigger and faster a year from now, or that I want to integrate a new product or solution. Lacking native interoperability, or the ability to connect to different things, I can't do that. So the internet or the problems that blockchain has today are very similar to the problems that the internet had back in the 90s. Um, the internet, like previously mentioned, just used to be a bunch of closed proprietary networks, which is exactly what blockchain is. If I want to go on Ethereum, I am largely limited to the technical limitations of Ethereum, the speed, the fees, the scalability. And well, yeah, there's, there's some workarounds. They aren't necessarily practical or they aren't necessarily something that could scale out. Let's, let's say that um, you had a large retail-facing business. Let's, let's say Nike wants to integrate in some type of blockchain solution and they build their project out on Ethereum. And they have like some type of NFT uh, system with, with their brand. That can work great. But let's say that the fees go up and all of a sudden this infrastructure that was supposed to cost them, let's say $100,000 a day to run or whatever. Now let's say it costs them $2 million a day and it's completely unsustainable. That's again, just one of the problems with blockchain as it currently stands. You are inherently limited to the technical specifications of each chain you use. Um, and it really, if we go back to the internet in the 90s, it wasn't until that it wasn't until that we bridged that gap that we were able to connect peer to peer and to use bits and pieces of everything together that we were able to grow past that point and see innovation that changed the world as we know it. And that was the dot-com boom. That was the birth of the internet era. And from that, we have all of these applications. We have Microsoft, we have Amazon, we have all of these major household names that are a huge part of our daily lives.
but in reality are nothing more than just applications built on the protocol of the internet of today. Now, as we all know, protocol is changing. Protocol is changing a lot of different ways. And, and with blockchain, the protocol allows us to build value in that core itself, which is a very exciting dynamic. And I think that's a big part of why we're all here. Um, blockchain allows, because of the inherent dynamics, and, and I'll cover this briefly, I'm, I'm almost done, guys. Uh, but blockchain allows the users of this new internet to benefit like never before. And, and it's not some too good to be true thing. It's not some hype scam thing. It's it's just an inherent dynamic to how the Web3 operates. And I'll cover this here shortly. But really, the Internet of today is, is a result of connecting all those closed networks of before. So this is where quant comes in. And this is why we took the time to talk about Internet and networks, to, to understand the evolution of the Internet of today and to understand the current climate of blockchain. So what does quant do? Why, why is quant such a big deal? Quant, as previously mentioned, is a technology company. They have a series of technology solutions, and, and one of which is called Overledger. You've probably heard about it, but Overledger is the world's first blockchain operating system. It is not a blockchain. And I'll repeat that because it's very important to make this distinction here. By being technology agnostic, i.e. just an operating system, it allows people to use any blockchain in the world and any network in the world with infinite scalability and no restrictions. So Overledger, this is a technology that sits on top of blockchains and it sits on top of networks and it allows you to connect any network to any other network and allow those networks to interact with each other. Um, we can get really technical and we can get really technical and dive into this, but um, fundamentally what it comes down to is um, what quant enables with Overledger is truly just the next step of, of the internet. Um, one of the things that we'll be able to do with Overledger is create an, an MDAP. So instead of just having a, a DAP, a decentralized application that's limited to one chain, you can take the bits and pieces and the, and the best applications and the best change and put them all together. You know, let's say, let's, let's imagine DeFi. Like if we look at the current climate for DeFi, um, what do we see? You have a couple chains that see most of the volume for DeFi. Initially it was Ethereum uh, and that was great until it grew. And now there's too many people on Ethereum and the fees are too high and it's not really feasible for new users. Like it, it might work for experienced users or people that have access to more capital but it's still not really scalable and it's, it's just, it's a lot. Um, so what happened then? We found other chains, you know, technology moves on. We get Avalanche, we get Solana, we get these big. Well, uh... Hungarian, can you hear us? Uh, the space is crashing because they just can't take it. <laughs> yes, we can hear you now. I, I apologize on that. Um, where did I cut off? 
All right, we'll wrap up here. Um, <laughs> so, hey guys, apologies for some technical difficulties. You know, spaces are pretty unpredictable. So, I think Hangir is back with us. So, keep going. Yeah. So, we were we were discussing Overledger. Why why is Overledger such a big deal? And it comes down to, well, well of many things, MDAPs the ability to use multiple blockchains and to create a decentralized application utilizing the benefits of all blockchain technology. Right now, if you want to utilize blockchain technology, you are limited largely to the underlying technology or the underlying protocol. So if you wanted to build um, an application on Solana or on Avalanche or on Ethereum, your project is, is largely limited to that. But what if you could build your project on Ethereum and then have, let's say, your NFTs on Ethereum, but you could also have your project use XRP for really fast transactions and reduce speeds. And then you could also have some of the security of your project stored in the hash with the hash rate of Bitcoin. And you could also incorporate, let's say, a, a legacy overlay for maybe a fiat on-rent off-ramp. So you can exchange like a credit card system like Stripe or something to buy your product with a credit card. Uh, and you could also have it integrated into um, really anything else. It, it really is the, the mix and match, the candy shop analogy here. Because with Overledger, with these... ...spaces, you are, you're locked into the technology here. And when the technology disconnects, <laughs> you're stuck with that. Uh, so moving on from, from the products, then we have a lot of other things. I, I just wanted to cover a few more things really, really quickly on why this is such a big deal. Um, according to the World Economic Forum, there's three different ways to connect or there's three different ways or approaches of interoperability. Blockchains. These are your interoperability blockchains, Cosmos, um, Polkadot, your, your protocols that approach interoperability by creating a large ecosystem with a, whether it's a higher transaction per second or a higher um, scalability limitation, they allow more to be in a bigger ecosystem, but ultimately it's still like a bigger ecosystem. Think, um, think of it like, like Netflix or, or Comcast. If, if you get Netflix, you have access to thousands and thousands of different movies and TV shows. And you could argue if you're looking at media or consumable media, that's kind of like one of the big players. And if you get that, you get a lot of that benefit. Um, but it still is, at the end of the day, it's still Netflix. It is subject to the limitations of that platform itself. But when then Netflix is plugged into the internet, it becomes something that you can access from anywhere in the world and you can integrate into anything else. Uh, and that's just, just one small little analogy of, of why this is such a big deal. Um, because... Overledger isn't one of these blockchains. It's not subject to any limitations. It's not subject to any scalability limitations. And, and that's why in, in practicality, in real use cases, and, and also according to the, the World Economic Forum, the best way to approach interoperability is not with a blockchain. There's another method, and that's with an Oracle network. And uh, again, with this same source and, and with uh, a lot of real world applications and in use cases, this also
No, take your time. Take your time. You're talking about Oracle. So let's keep going. The, so there, that's your, your second solution, interoperability. And the third solution to interoperability is an API gateway. And an API gateway in simplest terms is like just a, a plug, like a, a power core that you just plug in in the computer world. It's like the simplest standard interaction. Um, so it, it's a very simple method to use. And with a technology agnostic approach like this, providing one singular easy to approach or easy to integrate solution for interoperability allows it to be used by pretty much anybody. So knowing that an API gateway is the leading approach for interoperability, what Overledger represents is the preeminent solution. It is the number one solution within the API gateway category, which is the leading approach to interoperability. So thus we conclude Overledger is the best way to approach interoperability right now. And, and this has been covered for uh, many, many months in, in different levels. We have um, Oracle certification. We have the UK government certification. We have the use cases and applications ranging from multi-billion dollar brands to governments, to global standards bodies, to management consulting companies that oversee 80% of American publicly traded um, F500 companies. We have all of this saying that this is the way to do this. And and what we're entering into now is is the rest of it. Like earlier mentioned, this has all happened behind the scenes. Um, Quant is, is largely an enterprise-focused company right now. And that's because that's where the energy is in crypto. I mean, it's I think Deloitte said it's about 72% of enterprises are either actively integrating or recognize that if they do not integrate blockchain, they risk becoming irrelevant. So with the amount of money and energy in that enterprise space, billions and trillions of dollars, that's why Quant did that first. But now enterprise is connected. The framework has largely been laid behind the scenes and uh, a lot of that will probably come to light in, in the future. But as we enter into 2022, this is the year of, pub of public blockchain interoperability. 2022 is the year that public facing tools from Quant go mass adoption and enable an entirely new paradigm for blockchain. Um, when you start to think about the implications for what an MDAP could be, imagine what will happen when we start seeing projects roll out that can utilize bits and pieces of different blockchains across the world that can connect to any legacy network in the world. I mean, the, the possibilities are, are quite limitless. It really is like looking at the birth of the internet, you know, the dot-com boom all over again. And by getting rid of these walled gardens, these silos that all of these blockchains operate in, it's creating a level playing field for everyone in the world for the first time ever. And it's also integrated into the global standards that over 60 countries are using for blockchain. Um, the inertia is so great for something like this that it's it's almost a certainty that what we're looking at with Quant is uh, Microsoft and Amazon, uh, uh, Facebook in its early days, and, and likely something a lot bigger. So I initially I was going to talk a little bit about partnerships, but I, I think that we'll leave that um, for, for some other speakers to go into. But I, I want to make sure that we cover something that's really important that didn't get a chance to be talked about last time, and that's the QNT token. 
Like all this is great and all, blockchain's cool. It solves a lot of problems. The internet of trust is a really cool idea. But why are we all here right now? Are we here because we like the technology and we want to be a part of the future? Probably. I mean, I am. I think it's fascinating. But <laughs> are we also here because we want some benefit? I think so. And I think every person on this call would agree. You know, We're also here because we can benefit from this. But why? Why can the average person benefit from a network that's connecting banks and government across the world? Like, how, how does that make any sense? Why would you be able to make money off of a private banking network or off of a CBDC infrastructure network? And it comes down to, as I early mentioned, what blockchains allow. Um, I have this link to my profile, but uh, a gentleman did, named Ari did a fantastic thread on this. But it, it basically comes down to the blockchain business model. Why do tokens have value at all beyond their speculation? Um, very briefly, there are, let's see, there, there's a couple different key elements that comes to a blockchain, but it ultimately starts off with an idea. You have a, a vision from the founders, from the team, and they start to develop technology or protocol. And as investors see value in this protocol, they inject capital, which gives the token value. The token having value gives the platform functionality because now the people that give the network consensus that secure it, the miners, the validators, the node operators, the people that are securing the network now have an incentive for their decentralized security because the token is value from speculators because they see value in the vision of the team. Now, as the platform functionality increases, we start to get applications and third-party developers go in and they start to inject energy and human capital in. And from this, these applications start to get utility, which generate value from end users. And these end users, in turn, generate utility for the blockchain, which sets this flywheel in motion. Now, the speculator is a really key piece here, because without the speculator in the permissionless environment, tokens would not have value secured by speculation, which means that a validator does not have secure incentive to contribute their energy to the network. So in short, blockchains have value to the public, even when they're used for critical national infrastructure, um, because in a public facing environment, their value is required. Uh, <laughs> I can link this later in my profile. I know it gets a little bit abstract, but it is some really interesting stuff. And when you start to think about how real this actually is and, and how this is so far beyond crypto. And, and you could argue quant is like, like 99% everything else, 1% crypto. Um, <laughs> when, when you start to get into something this big, it makes you wonder like, well, why can I even buy this? Why do I need to be this as an investor? It's not a stock, it's not equity, but fundamentally what it is, is the fuel for the network. It is the cryptographic security tokenized due to the unique nature of what blockchain is. So if, if this was 20 years ago and we were talking about a company like this, and, and here's a hint, it would probably be close to Microsoft, like the closest analogy. If we were talking about something like this, retail only has one option, and that's to, to purchase equity when it's available publicly. And that, that obviously has some limitations, but as previously discussed, this new internet now has value within the base and underlying protocols itself, not just the applications. So now we as speculators, we as investors, we can purchase these tokens 
And as the network is used, the scarcity is programmed into it. So if the network is used as the network is used, the volume of transactions dictates the value of the token through the inherent scarcity. It's, it's programmed. It's trust in code over trust in executives, over trust in a business board. It's, it's, it really comes down to how the token is being used. And, and at this point, the adoption that Quant has, the network effects um, are, are so great. I mean, even as previously discussed, Spunta is one project from one partner. And just this one project from one partner will do more volume than Ethereum did as a whole in 2020. <laughs> and again, that's just one project from one partner. It's nothing. And, and, and thanks, Greg, for that amazing fact. It's, I really like that. Um, so if we know that this network is going to be used by hundreds of millions, by billions of people, I mean, again, just one use case, we have LAC chain, which is a entire national network uh, consisting of over 12 countries, the Latin American digital dollar, critical infrastructure for individual wallets, for emergency relief funds, for any type of national digital infrastructure. It's all running through Quant. And again, this is just one project from one partner. Um, so we know the volume's there. We know the usage is there. We know the adoption is there. So when we look at well, how does this translate to value? We only have a couple of variables here and goes, please jump in, man, if I'm going to butcher this, but we have the, the total value of the utility, the network effects, that program scarcity of usage to the network. We have the total speculative value, which is that speculator piece that we've previously discussed. The, oh, I think that QNT is going to go to $1,000 really damn soon or, <laughs> or, or whatever it is. And then we have that total value divided by the total amount of tokens which for QNT is only 14 million, 14 million tokens. For reference, Bitcoin is 21 million tokens. And that means that Quant is 50% more scarce than Bitcoin. Yet it has infinitely more utility with hundreds of use cases. I, I see Ghost, you come on. Do you want to add something here, man? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Luke and I, we, we did a whole deep dive into this, the quant tokenomic model, how uh, value will funnel into the utility token. And uh, it's uh, you did a very good job just uh, approaching why QNT can potentially capture so much value. I, I would be careful it to, to denigrate some networks because, you know, you can have like a pancake a mile wide and an inch deep, or you can have, you know, uh, a very, very, very deep well that's an inch wide and a mile deep. Yeah, it's uh, it's really hard to, to even fathom it all. Um, even even those of us that have been in the community for a while, we we still every day almost will have these points where we just get blown away. I hate Twitter Spaces. Um, I, I don't know if I can even continue using this because I get keep getting cut off every time. Um, if if y'all want to pivot over to Telegram for this, um, we would have a much more consistent connection, at least for myself. Um, just letting you know, I probably won't be able to contribute in this discussion like this just because I would hate to to, to be in a thought mid-sentence and then just get cut off. So my apologies, everyone.
No worries, man. I think we're all kind of working through the, the technological challenges here. Let's um, let's see if we can pull it together just because we've got a pretty good audience right here and for, you know, for the sake of continuity. But uh, if it does prove to be an issue, we can definitely pivot. Um, I know it's pretty frustrating here. I think this is like my fifth time reconnecting. Uh, I'm, I think but, I'm on um, 12 myself. Um, so. <laughs> Keep going. Uh, <laughs> so in short, what does this all mean? Uh, for one, I took 40 minutes to talk about something I intended to take 10 minutes to talk about. So I apologize for that. And I appreciate your patience and listening to me ramble. Um, but what else does this mean? Quant has created the world's first blockchain operating system. This allows anybody in the world to use blockchain at scale for the first time. And the gravity of this should not be lost on anyone. By solving native interoperability, Quant is laying the foundation for the internet, for the blockchain internet, for the next evolution of internet, the internet of trust, the internet of value. I mean, whatever you want to call it, it is the next and natural inevitable evolution uh, dictated and required by society now. Um, we, we covered this a little bit last time, but Blockchain, in its essence, allows humans to trust each other for the very first time. And that has some pretty profound implications. And whether that's five years, 10 years, 15 years from really coming to like a, 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 a life-changing paradigm, um, it, it doesn't really matter because it, it's kind of inevitable. It's the direction that we're going and we're all a part of it. And what Quan is doing is, is laying the foundation. So, yes, is... Is it a big opportunity from an investment standpoint? Personally, not investment advice, I think so. Um, is it something that will dramatically alter the landscape of crypto and DLT forever? Yes. Um, but again, recognize that this is so much more than crypto. It's so much more than even just the broader DLT um, environment. It's we're, we're talking about internet scale changes here. We're talking about complete changes in how humans interact in society, how we organize ourselves, how we communicate, how, how all of this works. And once blockchain is able to be used at scale, the same way that the internet is today, all of this can be possible. So what happens from here forward over the next one years, the next one year, three year, five, 10 years, it's only going to continue to accelerate. And what Quant is doing is, is that the cornerstone of all of it by allowing every person to use every blockchain um, the same way that you can use the internet today. It's just opening up an entirely new world. And there's no way, there's no other way to do this right now. There is no other technology in the world that you can do this with. And it's, it's here now. Fundamental to everything is the QNT token. Um, this has been asked a lot in the community. And I, I know there's a lot of confusion because there's not, um, an extensive amount of information on this available yet. Um, but what we do know is that the QNT token is absolutely integral to it all. It is what gives this system its cryptographic security, utilizing the cryptographic security of DLT, um, the decentralized security. I mean, it just, it has to be there. Um, and then as the network is used, the value is reflected through scarcity in the QNT token. Um, We'll learn a lot more about this in the coming weeks and months, but 2020, 2022 is the year of public blockchain interoperability. This is the year that Quant takes these solutions and it really makes it public and it allows things that have never been seen before. Um, and it's, it's not hype. 
It's not some empty promise or an announcement of an announcement of an announcement. Um, it's the next step. I mean, there's so many use, I mean, there, there's so many times where we could see Overledger stepping in to, to change the game. And uh, we're really just beginning to see that now. So thank you guys for your time. I'm going to go ahead and kick it off to uh, the next speaker. So I, wow, I guess I, I think can... that was great. Go ahead. Sorry, Max. Go ahead. I was just about to say, like, uh, thanks for all your patience, guys. Uh, we do experience quite a few technical difficulties, but uh, it, it is what it is. So we're just powering through this. So thanks for bearing with us. Uh, Ghost, I know you can do this too. So we really want you to be a part of this discussion. And we know that you can uh, contribute a lot of great information. So just uh, stay here and uh, everything will be fine. I'm sure. You know, I have hosted multiple events in the past and... Uh, Honestly, this is uh, the first, oh, I mean, the second time that it's actually happening like, like this. So I hope it's just going to get better from this moment on. Just want to make sure that, uh, let's just go ahead and go around the speakers really quick to make sure that we have a good connection. Uh, Greg, Jeff, Ghost, can you hear me? Everything is fine? Yes. Greg? Yeah, all good here. Ghost, are you still here? Well, I guess uh, Ghost is not here. So let me go ahead and invite him as a speaker. Um, Hungarian, just wanted to say that it was a great presentation. Uh, definitely a lot you covered. And um, I think one of the topics that we touched on briefly during part one, it was uh, CBDCs. So it's a pretty extensive topic. And um, I would like to touch on this in depth. And uh, I'll do my absolute best to cover as much as possible and uh, without putting all you guys to sleep. So let's dive right in. Probably not a bad place to start would be with answering the question, uh, what is a CBDC? CBDC stands for Central Bank Digital Currency. It is a digital form of fiat money, which is issued by governments or central banks and is controlled centrally, which is similar to fiat money. One thing I wanted to emphasize on is that CBDCs are not a replacement, but a complement to existing forms of money. I see a lot of posts that are talking about that, hey, CBDC is going to replace money. I don't think we really need this. But yeah, so I just wanted to point out that this is not a replacement, but a complement. A CBDC could be designed for retail use, which would be like a digital version of cash that is universally accessible, or for wholesale use, where it is accessible to financial institutions and large corporations for use in a wholesale payment and settlement systems. So you might ask, it all sounds good, but why should we care about CBDCs? Well, I'll do my best to explain why. Many central banks are currently researching the potential benefits uh, and other implications of issuing CBDCs. I think today it's around 90 countries, 9-0, yeah, are considering introducing their own form of public digital money. And seven countries are already actually launched a CBDC. A few examples to give you guys. It's, it's a cent dollar in Bahamas, I think was among the first projects uh, and one of the latest projects was in SCBDC in Nigeria. I've seen someone posted on Twitter before that I think Jamaica is coming close as well. 
So, yeah, there are a lot of live project, uh, projects nowadays. Currently, 17 other countries, including China and South Korea, are in a pilot stage. As you can tell, guys, governments are all over the world are paying pretty close attention. Since I mentioned China, let's talk a, lot, a little bit about this. China is way ahead of any other country in developing a CBDC, which they call a digital currency electronic payment. I think China started developing its CBDC in 2014 and tested a pilot in 2020. So yeah, they're pretty much seven years ahead of everyone else. There was an article that came out earlier this month that WeChat, which is China's uh, most popular payment platform, will begin accepting digital yuan payments through WeChat Pay, which is its digital wallet. China plans to roll out the CBDC in time for widespread public testing, actually next month when the Winter Olympics in Beijing start. So that will be pretty interesting to see and observe the adoption of Chinese CBDC and see if any other countries will follow suit or not. When it comes to outside of China, um, work on a digital euro is now underway. And finally, U.S. policymakers are now warming up to the idea of digital dollar. After seven years, uh, it's been developed in China. U.S. finally is paying attention right now. So, But I heard a comment from Jerome Powell that he said that uh, it's not really important to be the first one, but what's important is uh, to make it right. So I hope that uh, they're going to make it right. And uh, I've seen a post somewhere that uh, someone mentioned that, that some of the papers about digital currencies will be released in the next couple of weeks. So I'm pretty excited to read about this. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. So what causes the governments to pay attention? Two reasons. First, central banks are concerned about big tech companies like Facebook, for example, that they could issue their own digital currency to their users. And second, many central banks are concerned by the decline in the use of physical cash, actually, which in turn could potentially undermine public confidence in the monetary system. And um, 2020 pandemic definitely is not helping with the use of cash, as you guys can see. I already mentioned that there are two types of CBDCs. It's retail and wholesale. Let's touch on each kind separately and start with retail. There are two different approaches to retail CBDC. Direct and a two-tier approach. Direct allows transactions to take place through a direct connection between individual CBDC users and the central bank. And a two-tier approach involves CBDC users interacting with each other through commercial banks. Two central banks, I think, in China and Sweden are experimenting with a two-tier structure. And uh, the Bank of International Settlements actually supports it. So that's pretty cool. When it comes to wholesale CBDCs, they will be used only in transactions between financial institutions. And they intended for the settlements of interbank transfers and related wholesale transactions. Now let's talk a little bit about the benefits that CBDCs could provide. A CBDC system has the potential to incentivize innovation and greater competition in payment sector. And we guys, we know that there's definitely no lack and shortage of competition in this payment sector. It's pretty severe. 
So this increased competition could lead to a reduction in card fees paid by merchants, which in turn could be passed on to the consumer. This is good. When it comes to less developed countries, their motivation for retail CBDC is related to improving financial inclusion through greater access to payment services to unbanked population. I think approximately two-thirds of the world's unbanked individuals own a mobile phone. And because digital currencies can be distributed to, with your phone, they can reach people in remote areas which have limited access to banks and physical cash. There are multiple potential use cases for CBDCs, and uh, one of the use cases that I can think of is, so let's take stimulus payments, for example. I think a lot of us had a, a direct experience with this uh, du during pandemic. With CBDC, a central bank could send fast payments to a targeted set of users and program-specific spending parameters, which is pretty cool, and I don't think we had this capacity before. People could receive immediate government assistance directly in their digital wallets. No need to wait for a check in the mail or for the funds to clear in your account, which is pretty common issues that a lot of people have nowadays. And this is just one of many use cases for CBDC. What else? CBDC could also improve cross-border payments. Here's a pretty cool example for you guys. In 2018, the Bank of England gave TransferWise access to a central bank reserve account. For some of you that are not aware of TransferWise, it's a fintech company and its specialty is cross-border payments. So this move enabled TransferWise to settle transactions more easily, which in turn resulted in annual cost savings of 1 billion pounds. Let it sink in for one second. That's pretty massive. This is just one example. So a wholesale CBDC could facilitate this kind of benefits at a much wider scale. Cross-border payments are expensive and slow. This is the typical information that we gather a lot on the internet nowadays. And CBDCs may offer a more efficient way to handle them if national CBDC systems could be connected. Yeah, I'm talking about interoperability, and we'll touch on this more a little bit later. CBDCs could make cross-border payments cheaper and faster and could provide data that would make transactions more secure. The latest cross-border payments test is Project Dunbar. It's a partnership between South Africa, Singapore, Malaysia, and Australia. So, like I said, multiple countries all over the world are paying very close attention. Well, this on benefits, I think the discussion would not be complete if we're not touched on risks that uh, CBDCs could uh, bring. One of the most common risks that I see is that CBDCs have the potential to provide governments and central banks with the ability to monitor citizens' payment transactions, which in turn can pose a uh, risks to individual privacy. Yeah, that's a pretty valid concern, but uh, I, anything else can be said about this as well. So it's uh, we'll see how it goes with this part. The US dollar is actually is the world's most frequently used currency in global trade. Some of the countries mentioned that reducing their reliance on the US dollar and avoiding US sanctions are some of the motives behind developing CBDC. To give an example, Central Bank in Russia said that a digital ruble could help mitigate the risk of transactions, 
<laughs> what can I say? That's pretty typical from Russia. Did not expect anything else from these guys. Anyway, there is also a security risk possessed by CBDCs. What I mean by this? Individual accounts could be compromised through weaknesses in cybersecurity, but I think it's a common issue among different sectors and is not really specifically related to CBDCs. Like I said before, CBDCs are taken very seriously. Multiple initiatives were created. For example, let's take Digital Pound Foundation or Digital Dollar Project in the United States or Digital Euro Association in the European Union. While the implementation of a CBDC is not necessarily based on distributed ledger technology, this is by far the most likely progression route. Jeff, I hope you're here with us, and I know that you're dying to tell us more about this. I am, Max. Thanks for uh, doing the intro on CBDCs. Um, I'm going to tell about what uh, Quan is involved in, uh, CBDC-wise. Uh, Hungarian already touched upon one of them, being a big one. It's a LAC chain in Latin America and the Caribbean, uh, which starts in 12 countries and will be a wholesale CBDC, as far as I know. I haven't seen them talk about a, a CBDC specifically for uh, retail people. Quan uh, has been uh, pretty open about this one. Uh, they've been posting multiple videos about how they're involved and uh, when they're going to start. And LEC chain started this January and is going to ramp up in the next 12 months to uh, yeah provide wholesale capabilities between the US and Latin America and the Caribbean. Uh, that's one big one. Uh, then we have another one, which uh, is a partner, which is uh, SIA, which we've touched upon in part one. Uh, they merged with Nexi and Nets a few months ago, and both SIA and Nexi were tossed by the ECB, the European Central Bank, to uh, perform tests and uh, on how to create a uh, digital euro and how that would uh, work within the current ecosystem and how that would uh, provide better cross-border payment abilities. Uh, then we have uh, the UK, which has uh, the Digital Pound Foundation set up and also the technical committee to look out and search for uh, options how they could implement one we've seen the house of lords uh, put a, a bit of a, a pedal on it or a, how do you call it uh, calling it off a little bit because they don't uh, see a, a use case for it yet um but it, as currently they are uh, the Bank of England is overhauling its uh, real-time gross settlement system, which uh, settles 6.7 trillion uh, pounds per day. Uh, and they are adding a DLT option, uh, a plugin, which uh, is connected via an API, API platform. Uh, I wonder which platform that is. 
Um, Quan has been pretty straightforward, uh, pointing towards that they are involved, uh, Gilbert specifically. Uh, I think Max uh, showed us pretty well what are the cons and uh, the pros of what the CBT could offer. Um, and I think it's up to see what the Chinese are going to do uh, next month when the Olympics are going to be held there. I think that will be the kickoff because we're waiting on the paper from the United States where Gilbert also has a, which Gilbert also has ties to because he's been a member of the Faster Payments Committee for the Federal Reserve. And he's been to the Boston Fed. I think it's yeah, it was pre-corona where he had talks about how they were going to implement the CBC if they wanted to. Um, well, we've all been waiting on the paper for Pro Project Hamilton, which uh, ties in with uh, one of another partner of Quant, which is MIT. Uh, together with the Boston Vet, where Gilbert has a lot of ties. I think uh, yeah, it could be a, a nice one. I hope that's what uh, you expected, Max. I don't know if you know, have something to add to it. but I, I have something to add, if uh, you all want to hear. Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead, Ghost. Yeah, um, Jeff, I'm actually surprised you didn't address this just yet, but there is so much to cover that um, it's completely understood. Um, but uh, Project Helvetia uh, is a really key project. And Max, you were mentioning the latest um, project for the likes of uh, the BI, or sorry, for the likes of CBDC settlement and CBDC being shown in the real world examples was Dunbar. And it's true, Dunbar was a recent uh, uh, project, but Helvetia part two is the most recent uh, iteration of such. Um, and this is uh, not just some random project I'm bringing up and I'll get into why, um, but for some background, um, the Bank of International Settlements is the central organizing entity for the current financial regime as we know it. Um, they've existed for a long time, before World War II, and even after World War II, they were rehabilitated, so to speak, from an entity that basically cleared central bank settlements of gold from one to another to one that set policy and policy decisions. And we see that also uh, in Basel as well, um, this is where they're based. And after 2008, um, the financial crisis, a series of Basel edicts came out of the BIS that established precedent for the way banks were supposed to treat collateral and then credit creation from this collateral, seeing as we're now in a uh, reserve-less world, meaning that their currency is backed by nothing but debt. So there needed to be much stricter regulations on how such currencies were or how such credit was created. But I digress. Uh, getting into them, they established an entity called the BISIH, the Bank of International Settlements Innovation Hub. There are several uh, spots, uh, hotspots, so to speak. Singapore is one, 
I'm pretty sure Hong Kong is another, and then Switzerland is a third. And each of these are focusing on uh, technological innovations for the financial system and how they can potentially change the way in which we conduct business. Um, the key lesson here being that uh, one of these projects conducted by the hub in Switzerland um, was called Project Helvetia. And again, just as Luke and I, uh, Luke uh, Coit, my friend, uh, did a did a YouTube video about the tokenomics of quant. We've also done a, a video about Project Helvetia, the history and the importance of Helvetia and where quant plays a role in this. And now again, um, just to make it clear, uh, Project Helvetia is a multi-party project that is all about trigger mechanisms of uh, central bank assets, in this case, the Swiss franc, being uh, tokenized uh, on uh, a DLT platform hosted by the likes of Six Digital Exchange. And so Six Exchange is the securities provider for the likes of Switzerland, which is integrating and adopting DLT via this platform they called SDX, Six Digital Exchange. Now, it is a uh, a soft secret that um, uh, Quant is partnered with SDX. We've been uh, we've been working from Switzerland for some time since our inception of the token generation event. The uh, and and Sw uh, Six Digital Exchange has mentioned several times in their Twitter account the nature of uh, uh, they've been lauding QNT and uh, they've been using an, an API gateway approach for interoperability, the same thing uh, Quant uses. So it doesn't take too much uh, speculation to say that we are involved in these trials. And, and to go into this further, you can, I can mention that uh, Gilbert himself has said that they have a great relationship with people at the BIS. So there is a lot of smoke to this fire. Um, but I, I digress again. Um, project Helvetia, again, is a project in tokenizing uh, Swiss francs and then using that for bank-to-bank -bank wholesale transfer for DVP, so delivery versus payment, using these uh, tokenized Swiss francs in order to pay for security, uh, digital or not, um, and, and to have interoperability between multiple different participants of this ecosystem. So you have the BIS, Swiss National Bank, SIX operating their infrastructure, SDX. You have the likes of Citibank, uh, I think State Street, um, Goldman Sachs. Then there was another name in there. There's another, some other commercial bank, two others. But, but all these entities that are essentially trial running this new financial tool, which is uh, the first instance of natively programmable money that uh, we would have uh, access to, so to speak. Um, and this is like, uh, to, just to say, to say, to talk about the number of use cases that come out of this are, are incredible. I mean, for, for one, bond issuance is incredibly important for fundraising for governments. And a lot of people don't realize that um, the interest rate in the, in the curve, right, for the, all the different bonds that uh, uh, a government can issue, this, uh, the, 
these are these are not homogenous. It's not a smooth curve. You actually can. There's actually a, a lot of process and work that goes on in the back end in order to ensure that bonds are all uh, have have basically the same fungibility. Because in really, they're a bunch of NFTs. They're a bunch of discrete um, instruments and contracts that are just kind of homogenized together in order to uh, raise money and build a market for this. So with digital bonds and digital cash, you can create markets where you can have automatic um, integration of all these different discrete issuance of debt um, that could make fundraising for governments exceedingly easy. And then that's just like one use case that comes out of the digitization of the current financial infrastructure and the ability to run that natively on DLT. So, I mean, does that, I think that covers a pretty interesting use case um, and approach that CBDC can do for the world as we, the financial world as we know it. Yeah, I think uh, that was pretty good. Thanks goes for adding this information. I'm sure a lot of the listeners really appreciated it. Um, I did for sure. Do you guys have anything else to add before we move on to the next topic? Hungarian and Greg, Jeff. Solid, man. Let's keep rolling. Yeah. Well, there are no problems with any connections, uh, for sure. Absolutely. Just just wanted to point out real, really quick. Uh, I see a lot of requests uh, that are trying to come on stage. So, guys, hang tight. Uh, we'll, I will bring all of you once we cover all of the topics that we intend to. So thanks for your patience and uh, yeah, stay tuned for Q&A session. Greg, uh, would you like to take over and talk about uh, QRC20? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, yeah, great job covering all this so far, guys. Um, there's really a lot and... Uh, We've, we focus so much on the enterprise and the government side of things. And again, that's really like the core of Quant's business, right? Uh, they're, in, they're a B2B enterprise company with a heavy focus on government and central banking and, and large enterprises, right? So um, now having said that, there is this thing called crypto and the community side of things that... Um, you know, I know on this Twitter spaces, this is probably a nice mix of uh, traditional investors and crypto investors. And um, Quant obviously has their token, the QNT token, which is part of crypto. You know, it's listed on Coin Market, Coin Market Cap, uh, Coin Gecko, um, while also they kind of operate, you know, as a standard uh, traditional company. So it's this interesting kind of mix between the two sectors. And uh, as Hungarian alluded to in the intro, they've kind of gone after that 99% of finance uh, first. And now, as we turn the calendar to 2022, uh, well, I guess the week before that, or you know, right before the holidays, they released their latest version of Overledger. Again, Overledger is Quant's flagship product. Um, Overledger 2.1.5. And essentially, uh, this is the first meaningful uh, kind of moment 
in opening the doors to community developers to become a part of the ecosystem. Uh, as this technology has been available to enterprise for years now, um, three plus years, and now they're starting to make tools available to independent developers and um, the community. So we don't have a lot of details about this. Um, they've, you know, the company has pretty much gone silent as far as this update goes. Um, it came out, I believe on like, the, I don't have the exact date. It was the, in the twenties, December 20 something right before Christmas. And uh, the big part, you know, there, there were two parts to Overledger 2.1.5. The first is that they've enabled the ability to pay for Overledger license fees in QNT via MetaMask. So MetaMask obviously is a very common browser plugin that will allow people to interact with Overledger, you know, right from their computer. Um, and so that has been hinted at for a while, and now that is available. Um, the second part is something that has a, a pretty large reach and it's a way for Quant to invite community developers into the ecosystem in a very meaningful way. And again, what I'm about to read you is a, like two or three sentences. It's all we have on it. And when, what I'm gonna do is kind of um, extract uh, what we as the community believe this means and some of the impacts that it might have going forward for not just the company, but for the token and for the entire ecosystem. So this is a quote from their press release or their PR announcement when they released Overledger 2.1.5. They said, QRC20 is the new multi-DLT standard for digital assets developed by Quant. Its purpose is to unlock single DLT limitations for new digital assets and tokens. Developers will be able to use Overledger's API to choose which QRC20 functions they want to include in a smart contract, and DLT fees can be paid using MetaMask. Now, one thing I also thought was interesting was, uh, I don't know if you guys noticed this, um, for those who are paying attention, but there was another half, like another uh, half sentence that was included that actually they removed. And so the original sentence was, its purpose is to unlock single DLT limitations for new digital assets and tokens. And then here's the extra part and enable a transition from ERC20 to QRC20 for existing tokens. That was initially there and then they, they removed it. Um, I'm not sure why, maybe they didn't want to just like highlight Ethereum in particular, but there is something very telling about that um, little phrase. And so, uh, just to break it down a little bit. So the, the big thing here, right, QRC20, what is this and what does it mean? So you may have heard of ERC20, right? If you if you follow crypto at all, ERC20 is a token standard for smart contracts that are built on Ethereum. And what it does is it provides a set of rules that all the Ethereum-based tokens must follow. And that it's, therefore they can interact uh, within the Ethereum virtual machine. What is the Ethereum virtual machine? So this is basically a decentralized computer. It's a bunch of code that lives uh, by itself on the internet and it runs ERC-20 smart contracts. And it acts as a layer between the person who's deploying the code and the nodes that run the code on the network. 
So it provides a bit of security and decentralization in terms of, I don't just send my code directly to a node. It has to go through the Ethereum virtual machine. It breaks it down, um, breaks the code down into a common language and then talks to the nodes. So what that enables you to do is you can have other blockchains that are EVM compatible. So there's over a hundred other blockchains that have been created that are Ethereum virtual machine EVM compatible, meaning that any smart contracts that you can run through the EVM can also be run through the new blockchain's virtual machine, that other blockchain. Um, the difference is that by running the contract through the new blockchain's virtual machine, the transactions are verified and settled with the, the other blockchain's consensus mechanism, which usually offers advantages uh, or other features that Ethereum might not have, such as faster speeds or cheaper costs, right? So because Ethereum is the largest and longest running smart contract development ecosystem, when you make your new blockchain EVM compatible, it's an easy way to import your project without having to start from scratch and take on the advantages or the features of the new blockchain uh, that Ethereum may not have. So a couple examples are the TRC20 standard from Tron or BEP20 on the Binance Smart Chain. Uh, these protocols not only allow ERC20 tokens and contracts uh, to be deployed on them, but also are backwards compatible so that you can run the new blockchain's contracts back on Ethereum if necessary. So it creates this uh, ecosystem of compatibility. Um, so with a QRC20 token standard, Quant, what we believe this to be is Quant will now allow projects and enable projects to port their existing EVM compatible smart contracts directly onto Overledger. Quant's product, which will then provide that smart contract and that application the native interoperability that we've been discussing between all different virtual machines and even legacy financial systems. So, and again, it should probably, it will most likely be backwards compatible as well, so that if you create a QRC20 token from scratch, it can then also be deployed on these other blockchains. So, while the you know your your standard uh, layer one uh, competition to Ethereum, the avalanches, the Binance smart chains of the world that are EVM compatible, uh, allow you to build these smart contracts that have faster speeds, cheaper costs, etc. There's still not that value proposition of interoperability. So, although Quant is not a blockchain, by making a QRC twenty token standard that will enable you to import EVM smart contract, you're now basically just taking your existing work that is already uh, compatible with all the EVM chains and now making it not just compatible, compatible but interoperable. So I, I should probably, you know, I wanna touch on the difference between those two because I think it's important. So compatibility is when two or more applications operate as expected in the same environment, okay? So TRC20 tokens and ERC20 tokens follow the same rule set, and so they perform similarly in any of the EVM-compatible virtual machines. Interoperability 
is how two or more applications interact directly with each other. So in this case, different smart contracts on different blockchain platforms can communicate directly and can settle based on what the other one is doing. So if one does something, the other one can read off of that and then perform its own write function on itself. So again, compatibility is two or more applications that operate similarly in a given environment. Interoperability is two or more applications interacting directly with each other. So all of the EVM compatible blockchains, they're all compatible. They can all run, be deployed on each other and operate fine. But what Quant is doing with QRC20 is providing all of these different smart contracts the ability to port their code into Overledger and now get access to the native interoperability such that you can develop multi-chain smart contracts off of your initial single-chain smart contract and you don't have to start from scratch. You can just, and this is just so valuable to community developers because you're seeing, you've seen a lot of this traffic kind of jump from chain to chain, right? We've seen like, you know, Ethereum blew up and then Binance Smart Chain kind of blew up and then, uh, you know, Avalanche blew up and now we're seeing Phantom kind of get some, some gas and uh, no pun intended. And so like, these are all EVM compatible chains and it's easy for developers to jump around and to create these kind of systems because the code is compatible. Well, now you can actually do things cross-chain natively when you once you import through QRC20. Okay, so let's break it down just like another couple of ways to try and get some analogies. So um, for example, uh, this is similar to jailbreaking your iPhone, right? If, if by importing to Overledger. So you still have the same hardware and software on the iPhone, but you remove the restraints of what Apple allows you. And you can kind of just free-flowingly um, use different programs and different the, the potential of what that hardware and software provides rather than what Apple allows for. That's what going to Overledger um, allows. You're not constricted to a single ecosystem or a single blockchain. Um, and Another thing that it does is not just this, the multi-chain smart contracts, but this idea of a multi-ledger token. So we talked a bit about CBDCs, these central bank digital currencies. That is, they are going to apply Quant's multi-ledger token technology, which what it does is um, a bank or a financial institution will take a certain amount of fiat currency, dollars, euros, pounds, whatever it may be, lock it in escrow in a real financial institution. Then they will go to a blockchain or a most likely a permissioned DLT and they will mint tokens of the equivalent value to the money that they've locked in escrow. Those tokens will then have the, the multi-ledger token technology from Quant applied to it. Let's say that they minted on Hyperledger Fabric, um, which is a permissioned DLT. Uh, they will apply the multi-ledger token technology, and then they're with that technology, they're able to deploy that token on any blockchain in the overledger ecosystem, and or any DLT. And every movement and and uh, you know spent nature of that token will then be recorded on the initial DLT's ledger. Right. That's what overledger really is. It's a, it lives above the blockchains. It's a single ledger. Like if you think about Bitcoin or Ethereum or any of these, what they are, they're, they're ledgers. They're an accounting system that doesn't need a third party to prove that 
Bob gave money to Alice or vice versa. It says it automatically and every block produces all of the transactions that just happened um, in that block. And then it, re, you know, it resets the ledger for everybody in the network to read. And so we all know that this is the current state of the network and the current state of the token supply. Uh, when you have a single ledger that can live above all of the chains and all of the ecosystems at once, now we have a way to really monitor and to interoperate between all the different ecosystems. So with the multi-ledger token that technology that Quan has created for something like a CBDC is a perfect use case for that, right? Because if I have a digital dollar or a digital euro and I want to spend it in this network or that network or this company or this application or that platform, I can do it all. And it doesn't matter. It's all agnostic. Um, QRC20 most likely will be an iteration of the multi-ledger token standard, where again, you can import your EVM compatible smart contract or token directly into Overledger and then have it be interoperable and be able to live across multiple chains. Okay, so this is extremely powerful. And it's basically what we've been waiting for from a community perspective. Um, again, enterprises had access to this technology for years where the community is now being given the keys uh, very slowly but surely here, again, as we turn the calendar. And this is a critical year for all this technology to unfold and to make its way into the mainstream crypto. Um, so an example of a use case would be, uh, you know, by allowing for a smart contract to execute and balance across multiple chains, you dramatically increase liquidity and you open the door for things like multi-chain exchanges, um, right? So I could have, you know, an AMM uh, like Uniswap on Ethereum or Radium on Solana, PancakeSwap on Binance, et cetera, et cetera. And I can have like one multi-chain AMM where I can transact and move tokens all around every chain without having to do these custom bridges and paying extra fees and extra clicks and extra time. It can provide massive liquidity. Um, and again, this is like why these enterprise and global exchanges and things like the SDX, like Ghost was touching on, the Swiss Digital Exchange, these are going to be highly uh, regulated, you know, cross-chain, cross-platform exchanges where money and financial institutions uh, can move things around freely, all these digital assets across the space using this technology. And again, with QRC20, we're now anticipating that this is going to be available to the community in a meaningful way. So people can come and build to their heart's desire. Um, another example might be providing deep liquidity of stable coins for something like Curve, right? Where you can do stable coin transactions and, and swap between stable coins. Well, now you can do that cross chain. Um, or maybe uh, someone like Coinbase might create, you know, uh, an applica app store where you can download different decentralized applications or an NFT marketplace that goes cross chain, right? These are very simple kind of low hanging fruit use cases where it's like, what are we doing now? And then how can we add it so that all the chains can be involved in one platform to do that at an even greater level? Uh, and that's what Overledger provides. And that is what we're seeing most likely, again, we're still waiting on more details, but QRC20, now that it's been announced, uh, is very exciting as far as its potential for the community to build. Uh, 
currently the chains that are available on Overledger are what are called the Enterprise 5, which is Hyperledger Fabric, R3 Corda, Ethereum, JP Morgan's Quorum, and the XRP Ledger. And then in addition to that, there's uh, the compatibility and interoperability with Bitcoin, Constellation, EOS, Stellar, IOTA, and Binance Chain. Now, we know there are other ones because we've seen on people's LinkedIn's kind of, uh, you know, putting what they've done for Quant. Like, for example, we know that they've built uh, Substrate Layer and Polkadot and Kusama. And so there, there's likely other chains that are being built, um, especially some of these newer DeFi community-based chains that they, we just ha- they just haven't really announced yet. Um, but likely those will be announced as QRC20 gets rolled out. And we've also, you know, heard from Gilbert himself that, you know, there are going to be other ways for new chains to be added that will be compatible. And again, this is blockchain agnostic, so you won't have to be EVM compatible to connect to Overledger. But with QRC20, I think that's where they're starting because it's the largest ecosystem. Um, The other one of the other key ways is that community will be able to come in and build their own SDKs. Uh, to build the, these open source kind of connectors so that any project, any blockchain can connect via the Overledger API. So obviously for the QNT token, this is massive because for every, you know, similar to Ethereum contracts, for every ERC20 contract transaction, you need to pay a fee in ETH. Similarly, QRC20 uh, on in the Overledger environment, every transaction Will, fee will be incurred in the form of QNT. And so we saw what happened, you know, you know, from a price perspective anyway, with things like, you know, the BNB token in the, you know, Binance smart chain environment, what can happen when there's utility based around uh, a token that's required for fee payment. Um, and so, you know, again, this is cracking the door to the community for the first time, allowing independent developers to come and capitalize on Quant's enterprise-grade interoperability technology built within this QRC20 token standard. And everything is directly integrated already with MetaMask. So um, just to give you know an idea of like the excitement that I have in terms of how fast this can be rolled out and scaled, um, you know, they Quant put out a mid-year update last year in June. And they basically said, hey, look, you know, we've been putting out updates, you know, every few months, every couple quarters, they were kind of updating Overledger. And they were like, we're going to turn it up a notch. For the rest of the year, we are going to push releases to this product every two weeks. Um, And they pretty much followed through with that. Uh, There, I I went back and counted, they ended up doing 11 updates in 28 weeks, which is every two and a half weeks. So it's pretty close. Uh, It was a pretty aggressive timeline in terms of the releases and you can go check out the mid-year update and also the end of year update on quant.network and so if they were to keep up the two and every two and a half week pace um we're looking at over 20 more updates this year and because they've already announced kind of this qrc20 standard we have a real building block here for what each new release the forthcoming at uh you know releases to this technology could be and it's very exciting um i hope that kind of made sense 
to non-tech people because I'm a non-tech person. So I tried to kind of break it down to what I think QRC20 could be and will be uh, and will provide people access to, um, to take their existing work and, and be able to port it directly in and say, okay, we're interoperable now. Everything we've done, we can take it an order of magnitude greater now. Uh, so I don't know if anyone else wanted to kind of touch on QRC20 or what's happening with the community. Um, Ghost, I saw you on mic. I see you're back on stage. Did you have any thoughts around QRC20? Hey, uh, as long as this platform will let me speak, I will speak. Um, <laughs> very briefly, I just want to touch on the fact that uh, by the way, fantastic job reviewing that. I think you were so thorough and uh, very structured. I think anyone from beginner to expert would appreciate that level of uh, explanation, Greg. So just hats off to you on that. Um, but just to touch on something very interesting about what happens when a world facilitated by QRC20, uh, MLT, MLC, and these different interoperability primitives come into the world um, is this notion of interchange. So um, you, you said, you know, uh, I forgot the first thing you said, but you, you touched on, you defined interoperability. Um, but interchangeability is something very interesting. Um, when you have an application, as you mentioned before, like in AMM, and this could be like Uniswap, SushiSwap, et cetera, et cetera, because there's different flavors of the curve that is built from the automatic market maker and the average that is built from the two pairs or three pairs or however many. Um, but through this, you can actually have an ability to... So you, if you have discrete applications and discrete chains, you can you know, provide price discovery on both simultaneously. This is something like one inch, but multi natively multi-chain. Um, this is something like that can be facilitated, uh, providing efficiency, uh, these sort of native gains when you have this sort of interoperability. Um, but you can also find that um, for the discrete utility that every single chain represents, using Overledger, um, and defining a multi-chain application, you can actually bring uh, together and normalize the price and normalize the actual uh, user base amongst every chain according to the level of how much a, uh, let's say, a Solana or a an Avalanche or an Ethereum or et cetera, et cetera, can handle uh at, at a given time. Um, and this is very powerful. Um, this is the effect of a network of networks, which isn't just a meme. It's like a, an actual, it's a self-referential distribution process that, that where if someone say wants to store a gigabyte of data, you can find a, uh, a distributor of this utility through Overledger and then have this utility uh, be, uh, you know, you, you want to store it for a year, go find the best chain for that. You want to store it forever, go find the best chain for that. And, and you can actually break up discreetly where the user doesn't even know, but you can have storage and retrieval of whatever you are requesting to be stored automatically done through the multi-chain application and the revenues 
will be distributed more evenly across these various chains. Something like quant is necessary such that um, one chain does not rule at all. Like one chain to win them all is a very, um, it, it's, <laughs> it makes for a very fragile network. And when you're building with the internet, you want to build with protocols and things that are robust and things that can be replicated uh, across many different domains. And this, uh, and in this case, redundancy is actually a uh, a benefit and not a detriment. You know, um, and so again. I don't know, it's been going so good. Just just to end my end my session, I guess I would just say that uh <laughs> I'm just trying to like build back to where I once was, excuse me. Yeah, so composability through overledger, that's really how this all like this multi-layer cake is achieved, right? And and then getting back to inter interchange. When you have the ability to not only have these layer ones, which can be um, normalized for their respective utilities across different domains, thereby minimizing the undue network effect they can achieve. Like that's in one thing. But you can also do this very same thing on an application layer. Like you can achieve interchangeability. You can define what utility you want and then use that utility through a disparate number of applications for said utility. Um, and then again, provide that price normalization function there once more. It's an exceedingly powerful approach. It's something that we're going to need in this internet of value, just like how Google, a, a search engine, was needed for the internet of information as we knew it. Um, so, so a one-stop shop that doesn't that doesn't cannibalize the the uh, it doesn't cannibalize the actual benefit to the requisite networks. It just kind of lives on top. And, and kind of uh, orchestrates the interactions across every chain. Again, this is the, this is the promise of what Overledger is, is bringing to the table. Um, and I guess we can also like make a seamless transition into the next topic of discussion. And if I, if I drop off, my sincerest apologies. I've done my hardest, but I think there's uh, just only so much I can do with this. Um, but we're actually going Just when he's talking about technical difficulties, he's been kicked off spaces. <laughs> Here you go. Let me add him to the speaker one more time. I think he was going to jump into competition, right? That makes a lot of sense going with the, the transition here and kind of the benefits of overledger technology and the API gateways as opposed to building discrete bridges from chain to chain and 
the restrictions that that has, especially with regards to legacy finance. Ghost, are you back? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I just uh, did a a speed run for the fastest time it takes me to get kicked off sw- uh, Twitter Spaces. So, <laughs> uh, anyways, um, but yeah. So I, I was just going to say we have a, a next section which is all about uh, competition, uh, which is you know there's a whole world of multiple chains. Um, Quant is not the only entity trying to achieve interoperability. Um, why is QNT different or better? And uh, we can go back into, we've touched this already, but the difference between blockchains, oracles, and API gateways. Um, but there's something very interesting that I would love to bring to everyone's attention here, which is uh, Vitalik's discussion about interoperability and why he thinks the world will be multi-chain but not cross-chain. And so if you can actually review this, I pulled it up here. Um, but yeah, so in essence, Vitalik is, is saying that due to the nature and the security assumptions of bridges and the basically the dangers that arise, here be dragons, right? That when you build an application that interacts with multiple domains of trust. So these are multiple different blockchains or DLTs that have different security assumptions. They're not homogenous. Then uh, it just makes more sense to live in a world where the security assumption is as homogenous as possible and to have an asset that isn't exposed to say derivative risk. You know, a wrap token like wrap BTC on ETH. If you have a wrap Bitcoin, you're not actually interacting with Bitcoin through Ethereum. Some intermediary is holding that Bitcoin for you and then is uh, like, uh, then is kind of giving you this IOU. So, again, it's just very interesting. It shows you the limit of the current method of interoperability among implementations that effectively work, but in essence act as honeypots to where when they accumulate enough value Apologies guys for the technical difficulties. We're trying our best to work through them. And I try to bring Ghost back as fast as I can. And when they so they act as honeypots to where when they accumulate accumulate enough value, they'll just in essence they're just begging to be uh, uh, they're like a bug bounty. They're begging to be claimed. Um, so so overledger is not a a bridging system. So so there's no there's no necessarily there's not necessarily any private keys that can be exploited on the uh, on the as as an intermediary everything every private key is held by the user itself and all over ledger does is coordinate actions across multiple chains rather than say lock assets on one chain to issue them on another um and then like yeah it's 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 less of a it's more cryptographically based rather than just based on game theory, so to speak. Obviously, the OVN uses game theory to its own advantage. This is when users will be able to run their own uh, API gateways 
their own overledger tech, run their own node software, like could be Cosmos, could be Polkadot, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then provide access to these networks from these and then have interoperability between them through overledger. Um, so then just to touch that on as well, um, even though people claim like Cosmos and Polkadot are like competitors to quant because they also facilitate interoperability between all of their requisite ecosystems. This is uh, uh, just patently false <laughs> because uh, for one, each of them represents a certain class of blockchains rather than native interoperability across all blockchains. And, and two, they would benefit actually from cross-chain exposure themselves uh, natively. Like Cosmos ecosystems do well with other Cosmos chains because they all run Tendermint. Uh, Polkadot chains all work together because little uh, fractions of their block headers are actually stored in the relay chain, the main one that's running on Polkadot itself. So the parachains, they put a piece of themselves in the, in the main chains block, uh, the relay chain. It's always worth waiting for Ghost because he just spits such fire, like <laughs> especially from the tech side. I love it. Uh, apologies again. Should I keep going? Please. Yeah. Okay. So, so yeah, this is like just getting back into it. Cosmos. Um, they, there, there's. It's basically a constellation, pun intended, of <laughs> all these different uh, chains that are loosely connected to one another, and that do have bridge bridges from one to another that are achieved through the IBC with its inter-blockchain communication protocol. Um, but there's no center point. And so you can compose different stacks of applications between them, but there's no discrete, I guess you could say standard. Like even the Cosmos main chain is not needed in the Tendermint ecosystem. Whereas Polkadot, this is a, a world in which you basically don't have interoperability if your chain is not a parachain secured by Polkadot itself. Um, so there's there's that to consider as well, and it's it's very interesting because you know there and then there's other chains like Avalanche as well, which technically they claim they can scale to to unlimited validators, which is incredible. If, for those that don't know, most DLTs limit the number of validators that can participate in the system, whereas Avalanche is like technically unlimited. So they don't really know what problems could emerge as the number of validators approaches infinity. Um, but having all these different blockchains, and I could go on and on and on, available to you and to be do to be connected to is a is a very powerful position to be in. And so you now can understand why approaching each of these through an ISO standardized viewpoint like Overledger can be so effective. It's, and, and again, each of these bring the, brings their own flavor, but the true discrete utilities all converge to the same places. And so if one approach has a slightly better uh, uh, use case for a very specific instantiation, then use it for that and the interchangeability that Overledger facilitates 
will will make this seamless for the end user and bring more revenue for them rather than just have one network dominating all that revenue it it the beautiful nature of this DLT ecosystem is just further realized for, through a technology like Overledger and the OVN. And in one that doesn't, again, cannibalize value, but redistributes it according to how well everyone performs their duty. It's a, it's a really powerful vision and hats off to Gilbert for facilitating it. And in 2022, because we will be facilitating so much of these public tool sets, we'll be um, it's just going to be fascinating. We may see a chain link like rise into the top 20 as Overledger uh, and the tools that are built on Overledger are, are rolled out and developers can see how easy it is to use such tools. Um, and yeah, that, that, that's going to be exceedingly exciting. So would you say the chain link probably would be as close um, of a project to quant we're just like years uh, behind oh, is it correct i wouldn't say behind they're, again they're focused on oracleization so mm, like it, triggering mechanisms for contracts themselves um and and they're they're kind of approaching quants uh world so to speak uh so so in the sense that they have the ccip and uh one of my one of my mutuals just a tech guy did a great review over the nature of CCIP and uh, what it's like and how it works. And we might want to go over that sometime because uh, I, I don't think it could do it justice with intermittent <laughs> connective issues. But uh, yeah, so I would say uh, don't, they're not behind. They're, they're focused on a slightly different aspect of, of what DLT ecosystems need. But I would say that they Quant and Chainlink do overlap in many different ways in which they provide utilities and different, uh, uh, I guess you could say, like total total addressable markets. And so just like you have multiple cloud providers, you're going to also have multiple uh, layer two instances. And if you all remember before, we talked about ODAP, which is the Open Digital Asset Protocol. Um, and this is why Quant has focused on the development of this protocol so that we don't just get into this whole like internet network provider platform wars again. Um, we can solve it. We've already uh, been through this. We know how the way out it's through protocols. <laughs> so, so all these layer twos, which will eventually like Arbitrum, I don't see any reason why all these layer twos don't eventually go multi-chain natively. Um, but yeah, so all these layer twos will kind of converge upon this like value defining standard. And so like, again, ODAP, the uh, IBC, Inter-Blockchain Communication Protocol, the CCIP, the cross-chain uh, uh, cross interoperability protocol, those all will converge towards some universal standard. And there will need, it will, that standard will need to be powerful enough in order to achieve uh, and overcome the limitations of the current means of achieving interoperability, the ones Vitalik outlines. It's a blisteringly innovative space we're in right now, and things change very quickly. So just keep your eyes out, and just keep your eyes out on Quant as well, because they are someone that's uh, in the middle of all this. And so this uh, battle of the titans, so to speak, over the future of crypto is going to get just unbelievably interesting and hopefully produce some good things for the for the total of humanity.
That's such a good job, Ghost. And yeah, interoperability is becoming really a, a key word. And, um, you know, we've all like kind of inherently known this for a while, but I just hear it spoke about so much now. And it's really obvious that, you know, to Ghost's point, like there are the things like Cosmos and Polkadot that are providing interoperability within their own ecosystems. However, um, you know, not only are they just larger islands of data, but they don't connect easily to legacy infrastructure. So again, just to harp on this point that by focusing on enterprise and government first, you're tackling the 98, 99% of financial value that flows throughout the world. And then you can also tap into crypto while these crypto ecosystems these interoperability quote-unquote ecosystems are building crypto islands they're not you know even if they capture a large percentage of crypto uh, they're still not tapping into larger value at hand and and to the point about standards you know that fits right in right where eventually all of these different chains and all of these different uh, structures will have to adhere to some sort of standard if they want to be globally recognized and utilized. And so some will and some won't. And the ones that don't, you know, will probably fall off. And the ones that do, there's that's where quant is already, they've already been building and they've been standardizing, right? They've, they've built the ISO standard, TC307. Um, Gilbert is part of a NATBA. Uh, they're working with, you know, all the development of the CBDCs with all the central banks. Um, you know, they're already in place. They're building ODAP, right, with MIT and Intel and the U.S. government. They're already building all of these standards out because of Gilbert's background, his background in government, in cybersecurity at C-level positions in central banking. Like, he understands how this works. That's why he went and created the ISO standard before he built Quant. Like, it's incredible, again, to his foresight and the level at which he's operating. So, you know, really, when we do research on these different crypto projects and, and not even crypto, but just any investment, the first thing you got to look at, right, is the team, uh, you know, and, and obviously the problem solution. We, we all agree that interoperability is probably the biggest problem uh, to be solved right now. I mean, it used to be probably speed and cost, but it's now seems that every new chain that pops up is faster and cheaper than the last. So in some respects, that's been solved. We don't know how that's going to manifest in terms of where value will eventually migrate, but interoperability, now that's a real problem. And that's one, uh, another, you know, just again, to, to piggyback on Ghost's point about the rise we saw in Chainlink, um, it wasn't, it was a, a type of interoperability, right? Being able to, have data that you can take and migrate across different chains and uh, be trustworthy. That's there's a there's a you know form of interoperability in a sense. And what happened when we went into the bear market in 2018 2019 was basically Chainlink just went on a tear the entire time for the most part, right? Or at least I, I'm not looking at the chart, but I know it went up a lot and a lot earlier than most of these other coins, and it kind of stood out because. There's a real that was a real problem that it was really solving. And 
the next level of that is being able to create these multi-chain contracts uh, and being able to have these different ecosystems that finally, you know, they're not just ICOs like they were back then, like ideas and white papers and grand visions. We have actual working products now and they are dying to speak to each other and they're dying to be uh, done in a safe native way that's universal. And most importantly, eventually uh, the vision has to be to connect to all of the traditional finance ecosystems that, uh, you know, especially as regulation kind of creeps up, um, you know, it's not a bad thing. We want that. And Quant's sitting there waiting in the wings. So the problem is the biggest. Quant's got the best solution. uh, And it's just a matter of time now. To to speak on that point, um, I I want to take this point to to talk about the interplay between speculation and utility. Um, utility being the the usage of a coin for the purpose of accessing what that network does, and speculation being accumulation of that coin in anticipation for further value increase in the future. Um, I so like Greg was alluding to. Chainlink had a price increase, um, which, by the way, in it peaked in August of 2020, where it, it peaked with regard to Bitcoin, so being priced in BTC, um, which is kind of indicative of like something in, in, in more internal rather than just the sheer dollar uh, amount. Um, but so it peaked here, which coincides with the advent, I would say the first true advent of, of DeFi into the ecosystem. And so, and now it went on to a higher price with, uh, with, with regard to dollars, but everything else in the ecosystem also uh, pumped, so to speak, as well. And so, so I, I'm just going to say that, that this, this utilization of Chainlink, so it, and for most people that don't know, Chainlink is essential for stable coins to operate in the Ethereum ecosystem. They provide uh, the the necessary inputs for the the dollar instruments to be valued against uh, crypto instruments um, of each of these uh, implementations, and so and, and and that's not just for dollars, but it's and so this uh, or just not just for the stable coins themselves, but also all the different utilizations such as lending, uh, such as uh, trading. Um, and uh, who knows what else can be done in DeFi, right? But again, so this utilization of Chainlink, it provides a kind of like diamond bottom for the value of the ecosystem that Link represents. And then speculation multiplies that, uh, that basic utility uh, from there. It's almost like a, well, what's the term, Max? Isn't it like, like revenue multiplier for a company. Yep, you're correct. Yeah, so which is normally 10, but we're in a world where everything is bubbling up. So that may approach like 30, 40, 100 even, 100 times revenue. Um, but I, I digress. So, so this is something that, again, Quant has yet to really capture any of this like like public permissionless implementation of their technological use case. And, but when that does happen, then that's going to be really, really exciting. And you're going to see the price 
move because of that. But it, this isn't just like some Shiba coin, like like endogenous hype cycle. This is like reflecting actual like adoption in the real world um, at an international scale beyond nations because each of these chains exists beyond a geospatial region um and and that that's exceedingly that's going to be so satisfying for me to watch i i could care less about actually the monetary gains from it but i i just want to see like how can this technology be used to really change people's lives for the better and and there will be many ways in which it will so just it's like seismic change in which and what catalysts will achieve that seismic change in the end yeah you're spot on even though i not really big fan of discussing price action of any particular companies or projects just be just because of a pure speculative nature of this uh you're 100 right here and i agree with your great conversation contributions goes thanks so much so if uh, we came to this conclusion, yeah, that all of these projects that are consistently being discussed on Twitter or any other platform like Polkadot or Cosmos or Chainlink, not really true competitors. So in your opinion, guys, who are the true competitors to Quant, if any, for some of the newer people that are trying to get into this project, probably would be beneficial for them to know. Well, I can, uh, let's see if I can get it quickly. I can play a clip of Gilbert literally answering that question um, in the LCX interview. He talks about uh, how he doesn't necessarily see uh, Quant being a competition, or sorry, Cosmos and Polkadot and other blockchains being a competition, but uh, more of like traditional financial services at this stage. Um so let's see. I've got the clip right here. Let's see if my audio is on. Yeah, here we go. So this is an interview from May 2021. There might be other movers in the market. So SB is asking, what is the main difference to your biggest competitors? I would add, who are your competitors and what are the differences there? Yeah, we, we've done a lot of um, market segment assessments and, and competitor assessments. Um, so, so we're not seeing ourselves competing with um, blockchain interoperability projects. So, so there's a lot of uh, blockchains out there that, that are built for interoperability use cases, uh, something like Polkadot and, and Cosmos, for example. Um, and so, so what that means is um, you know, they're building a blockchain layer on top of all the other blockchains. And, and that's, that's, not, um, that's not the ideal way for all use cases. You know, what we'd want is a universal way to do interoperability, and that's what we've built. So, so our competitors are really traditional banking systems and, uh, you know, operators, uh, you know, things like Swift, Terminos, FIS, um, Fiserv, um, excuse me, sorry. Um, and, and what we're doing is um, enabling uh, the ability to have interoperability with the existing enterprise systems, with the blockchain systems. So we're complementing all the different blockchains and we're complementing how they interoperate uh, how they work with the existing enterprise systems, and that allows um, anyone to have choice. You know, we're we're, we're here to complement. If someone wants to use Ripple and XRP for for a particular use case, through Overledger, we make it easy to do that. If someone wants to use DeFi protocols, you know, through Overledger, you're able to use DeFi safely because it's very difficult for an enterprise system to go and use decentralized systems and decentralized networks, DeFi protocols easily. So we, we bridge that enterprise 
you know, link from that enterprise legacy system to all the blockchain protocols and all the blockchain systems out there. So we, we, we love collaborating. That, that's, that's kind of our, you know, connect and collaborate. That, that's our motto. There you go. So, you know, he's basically, especially right off the bat, um, you know, as we, I think there's a lot bigger use cases, uh, no, maybe not a lot bigger, but a lot other use cases, right. Than just finance. Uh, we haven't really touched on them, but obviously there's healthcare, there's IOT, there's digital identity. There's, there's so many things that are coming as we move into like, you know, smart cities and all this stuff that is going to need, uh, AI, you know, there's, it's countless, uh, the, the data that needs to flow from system to system via these distributed ledgers. But from a finance perspective, um, Gilbert sees like something like Swift uh, being more competition. And, um, you know, as Quan is partnered with SIA, uh, that is very much, you know, a, a real kind of um, destination to be kind of like this payment infrastructure for massive financial institutions and central banks across the world and competing with some of those old systems, which they'll probably end up all just plugging into Overledger and trying to survive and trying to develop new business models to stay uh, to stay around. Because as we've seen the internet come about and really take shape over the last 20 years, uh, you know, we've seen basically every single industry get disrupted except for money and banking, right? I mean, we've seen internet get you know being placed on top of banks and you have companies like Venmo and stuff and and PayPal and and that's great but they're not like replacing banks well blockchain and distributed ledger is really like a problem for the banking system as we know it as it starts to take shape and so quant is kind of there not just to disrupt it and to take over but you know it'll disrupt and take over certain parts of it and it will allow uh, cooperation between the parts that survive. So this is survival of the fittest of banking and enterprise. And the beauty about investing and being a quant believer, uh, once you kind of turn that corner and say, you know what, this is the best solution out there. Uh, you don't really have to worry about winners anymore. Like who are like, what's my favorite blockchain or my favorite ecosystem or my favorite DeFi protocol or whatever. And like, this is the one. And I think why it's like, it doesn't matter anymore because when you're when you have QNT because you're exposed to whatever the winner's going to be, they're all going to plug in to this larger connector system. So um, that's kind of where Gilbert's coming from, and I I like that approach. I, I would I would just venture to say that the competition for Gilbert and Co. and Quant will be anyone else that uses the ODAP protocol and they have pole position in that standard. Um, we've seen before that in TCP IP, that adoption by, uh, in particular, uh, regulators that are focused in, on national critical infrastructure is key. And from there, like academia rolls over um, financial systems and everything else. Um, and ODAP has all the right members, such as like MIT, Juniper, um, et cetera, et cetera, that the IETF, uh, which is built around TCP IP, uh, can, can validate. Um, so, yeah, I, I, to name specific names, um, maybe the likes of Digital Asset with their Canton infrastructure might eventually be a competitor. 
at the moment they they can't achieve uh, interoperability even between each of their discrete cantons. So that's uh, a <laughs> that's a that's a problem. Um, but uh, other than that, um, we may we may see something eventually come endogenously out of the crypto ecosystem itself. Um, there may be some innovations that come over there, um, but we have yet to see that. And uh, I, I welcome it if they, if they do, because uh, it just means that um, Overledger, Quant, the work they've been doing, would have something that it would be able to interoperate with, to pull from, and maybe to also converge together with on some universal uh, like cryptographic standard of value exchange. But for me, that's how I see it. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's worth just just touching on one more time. We outlined this a little bit last time and you just kind of touched on it there. But like the difference between ODAP and Overledger very briefly is like ODAP is a protocol that Quant is working to build on a global scale through the IETF, the Internet Engineering Task Force and MIT, who together were responsible for delivering and standardizing TCP IP, which is the current interoperability data standard for the internet as we know it. Now, as we move to distributed ledgers and all these systems start to upgrade, there needs to be an upgraded protocol for digital assets to move around where there's ownership involved and cryptography. And so they're working to build what's called the Open Digital Asset Protocol, ODAP, and they're delivering drafts to the IETF over the past year plus. Um, and it's anticipated, according to uh, MIT's representative, Thomas Arjano, recently said in an interview last week that he thinks it'll take another year or two because of the IETF's meticulous process and how detailed everything is and how, you know, I mean, we're talking about global standards for the Internet. So obviously, like every single detail, you know, needs to be accounted for. So there's still a couple years left in that. But what Ghost is saying is that quant. Um, and, and I agree because like I was, I was trying to, he said it much better than I did and kind of encapsulated it. Like it's bigger than just whatever, like financial services company. I think that's where Gilbert's brain is at right now. Like let's build these CBDCs. Let's connect these regulated exchanges, um, onboard all these banks. But I think, you know, if you zoom out, it's when ODAP becomes the standard, uh, and as we believe it will. Um, you know, because of the nature of the folks working on it and how far ahead they are, uh, that Overledger, Quant's product, is an iteration of ODAP such that it allows for developers of any size and scope to be able to build in an ODAP compliant way via Overledger and the QNT token. And so, uh, there will be other competitors that come and they say, we are going to build in this open digital asset protocol environment on ODAP via our solution. And we're going to onboard developers and we're going to onboard enterprises and they're going to start their own businesses around um, being ODAP compliant with this new standard. But Quant is so far ahead that they will have such a large market share at the beginning and for the first few years at minimum. And on top of that, the real differentiator is not just the head start that they have, but also the fact that they have a patent around their multi-contract, uh, multi-ledger contracts, right? The ability, we talked about having that single ledger 
to order and filter transactions across multiple chains and distributed ledgers. That technology is patented. So there may be ways to get around that, uh, as all patents seemingly have ways to get around, but you're going to have to get really creative and they're going to have to abide by the standards that are in place. So there is not just a head start, but there's also quite a bit of a, a, a legal moat as well. Um, around Quant's technology. So um, basically, you know, Ghost is saying that anyone that decides to build on ODAP eventually, once that becomes the standard over the next, let's, if he says one to two years, maybe it'll be two to three, you know what I mean? Like people overestimate. So let's, let's say by 2025, you know, all of this stuff is live and online and Quant is in the driver's seat. So Thomas Harjono had a, did you see this video? The one where it's from the encrypted economy? Yeah, I did. I watched it twice, but I, it's just a little over my head, but I tried. Well, if anyone else wants to uh, understand what we're talking about with regard to ODAP, we're not just throwing letters out there, um, or it's not a meaningless acronym, like the, the degree of uh, the types of people that are involved here are, are exceedingly impressive. Like Thomas Rajono, he he oversaw this consortia called Kerberos, Kerber OS. It's like uh, a reference to the the three headed demon dog that defended Hades. Uh, so it's a symmetric uh, encryption system that um, is implemented in many different ways. Um, I think it's behind the X five o seven. Is that it? There's an X.509, yeah, X509 certificate, um, which is uh, um, involved in this kind of thing as well. This is a asymmetric uh, key, the X509, but he was involved in both symmetric key pairs, which is where you you, you want to keep everything private, and then the asymmetric key pairs, which is what DLT DLTs use. Um, and this is the kind of guy that Quant collaborates with, writes research papers with, and um, establishes the the fundamental natures of how like this open digital asset protocol will be constructed. Um, again, we're talking about MIT as well, where he hails from, which was uh, critical in developing border gateway protocol. The border gateway protocol establishes the topology, so the actual like um, geography, so to speak, of how the internet routes packets um without bgp um for example facebook recently messed up their bgp signature um some four or five months ago and uh their entire their entire network which by the way funnily enough their um uh their login credentials in the real world as well was completely uh it just went down they, they couldn't uh, bring it back up. And <laughs> so because their physical credentials were also in this system, right? Uh, they couldn't open the server room, which is running the Facebook application. So it took them like a whole day in which they needed like to get, they needed to, to just physically shut down everything and then reboot it uh, <laughs> like remotely in order for them to bring everything back up. It's exceedingly funny. Um, but, but just, uh, aside from that, it, it's really it just shows you like the the like how important this technology will be ultimately for this 
growing new layer of the internet and how quant is establishing these standards um, and will be regarded as time moves on as one of these uh, uh, foundational giants of the of the industry um, so we, we may even see to get back a little bit to competitors we may see like something like a browser wars emerge here where if y'all didn't know mark Andreessen, he was from netscape he helped invent the first uh, effectively the first real commercial browser and they dominated for years um, and it took until i think internet explorer and Microsoft bundling that with their hardware in order for them to really displace uh, Netscape. And Netscape Navigator actually became the Firefox you use today uh, after Netscape donated their proprietary code to this foundation. Um, and so these things, they, they kind of, they have a tendency to cycle back. Uh, and so we may see this sort of narrative emerge uh, as like one idea, this overledger, this uh, overlay sort of approach interoperability uh, propagates among all the different market participants. So I've said too much. <laughs> now I'm just ranting. No, I think that was great. And uh, thanks for all this clarification. So while you were talking about ODEP, uh, just to clarify really quick, I, um, I think... Uh, ODEP was not necessarily created or initiated by the likes of Quant, right? It started with MIT, who in turn went to Gilbert and asked them to participate in developing this new set of protocols for the future internet. Is it correct? Just wanted to clarify for all the listeners. It's the other way around. It was Gilbert who... <laughs> I touched upon this the last time, but it was Gilbert who met with uh, Hargiano on a conference in which he uh, discussed his vision and then MIT wanted to collab with Gilbert for ODEP. Yeah, that's right. Thanks, Jeff. Gilbert, go. Man, I, I'm like in, in just awe listening to you guys talk. I mean, you, all, all you guys are just dropping absolute uh, alpha, you know, left and right. And I, I appreciate all of you guys being here to, to share this. I mean, this is a really cool and, and special place to be able to talk about something that we're all so passionate about and, and really dive into it like this. Um, and, and I'm grateful that we have this place. As, uh, as we look forward, I want to make sure that we have enough time to allow our listeners to be able to ask questions. Um, what else do we have left on our agenda before we transition into a Q&A? Uh, I remember you guys were talking about maybe touched briefly on some of the potential risks uh, as this one of the topics that uh, you don't see a lot being discussed anywhere, including Twitter. And risks are definitely one of the things that we have to take into consideration with any kind of investments that we're making. So if you guys don't mind, maybe we can uh, spend just a little bit of time on this topic. What kind of risks do you see with quant, if any? I mean, I think the most obvious one is probably uh, a lot of this is centered around Gilbert's vision and execution. So if anything were to happen to Gilbert, uh, that would, you know, crush us probably for at least the short term. Um, although there is so much in motion at this point that it may actually big, be too big to fail right now as it pushes forward. But, um, you know, there is... You know, I made this analogy last time, but similar to like a Steve Jobs with Apple and 
Elon Musk with Tesla, like Gilbert really is the visionary, the connections, um, you know, everything that is quant, uh, is embodied through Gilbert. So, um, in that respect, I guess there's a bit of a central point of failure. Um, but you know, we hope that obviously everything is fine with him. So, um, that's just the, the obvious one that comes to mind for me. So I would say, um, and I think the browser analogy holds here. Um, a part of the risk right now is that Overledger is not open source. Um, so Gilbert and team have taken a very um, possessive approach to their, their software stack. And so because of this, um, develop op like open source tools as well, which is key, key for a lot of uh, developer adoption, are, are scant. Um, so I would say that uh, that is another hurdle. Um, and again, to bring it back to the browser, uh, Netscape was also closed source initially. And that may have been what led to there being a displacement of them after, again, many years of dominance. So um, I would say strategically, it would be in Quant's best interest to, um, to open source at the right time. Um, I can't say for them when that time will be, but um, at some time, that'd be a good way to do it. If I'm wrong, Ghost, but haven't hasn't Gilbert and the team already indicated that there will be quite a bit of open source, uh, like kind of material and and availability to the community? I guess as they roll out these remote connector gateways and things of that nature, there will always be probably some part of it that is closed, but. Generally speaking, as far as the OVN goes, it will be pretty open. Well, I mean, uh, sure, uh, that will be necessary, especially as you are rolling out this protocol. Um, and, and I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't Windows also proprietary and closed source, so to speak? Right. So I think there's, uh, yeah, I'm not sure what that balance looks like. You know? Yeah what would be necessary in order for mass adoption and uh, and being able to hold on to that uh, mass adoption to take place. But I think they've probably, it's learned from the lessons that you're discussing with mm -hmm. the wave of the internet that they can't just keep it all. And, you know, you know, as we look at like kind of these different Gilbertisms, as we say, um, you know, <laughs> open, open standard is very much, you know, one of Quant's, mantras and so um you know i'm i'm encouraged by by that and i don't think that i think that's a great analogy kind of and i know that the microsoft analogy and i know that even gilbert has made that on stage before as far as the operating system um you know kind of marketing uh verb for uh verbiage goes uh, around quant so um yeah that that makes a lot of sense to me yeah um, I, I would just, one of my personal dreams is for them to open source this and then we can just see how crazy um, things can get as people's imaginations and um, the limits to single chain DLT implementations are lifted. Um, they just, imaginations can go wild over here. And I really do think we're going to see wholesale use cases that just aren't possible with Ethereum alone as it stands, whether that's to lack of scale or uh, the fact that it's like only focused on computation. So um, yeah, that that's a 
that's going to be really cool if they if they can achieve that. And it's hard to do because the level of their engagement with uh, governments and uh, large scale multinational corporations are as, uh, is big. Um, so, uh, and it takes up a lot of their time. So it, it's something that they're going to have to focus on scaling out uh, intentionally once uh, they're at a point to do so. Um, is there, is there any other risks y'all think possible for this? One of the potential weaknesses that I typically see a lot of being thrown out is that there is no dashboard to track the activity and progress of all the projects that they have. And, uh, Maybe some of the investors could be uh, kind of uh, not okay with this as there is no way to track and see the real life adoption of this project. What do you guys think about this? Uh, that That's coming. Yeah, that, I mean, that's absolutely true. Although I don't know if I'd put it as a risk as much as an opportunity, to be honest, because I think that the adoption is so real based on the evidence that we have that once we are and they have indicated directly to us that there will be a dashboard available uh, with the stats of the network i think what we're not totally sure about is how far they'll pull the veil back um, as far as you know will it show community uh, like ovn for the community will it will it open the door to show the enterprise transaction volume but being able to show charts and graphs and growth of the network and and tap into that um, is going to be very valuable from a marketing perspective and i yeah i personally view that as an opportunity the fact that we don't have that type of insight and that's what we're really trying to like bring to you in these rooms is the alpha like truly like the reason that we're so passionate about this is because it's such an opportunity uh in our minds that uh, and again, this is an investment advice, financial advice, but the price of the token right now, uh, the, the market cap um, compared to some of these other projects and just the scale at which Quan is attacking the space is kind of silly, in my opinion. Uh, and the fact that we don't have that insight into the growth of the network on a day by day, quarter by quarter, year by year basis is part of the reason that we're going to be able to get such good prices. Um, at some point, this is all going to click uh, one thing after another, and people are going to wake up to the fact that um, quant really is growing very quickly. So um, I think that's a short-term risk, but it's I think that that's an easily solvable risk, and it's one that they've indicated is actually on the way. Once we see multi-chain DAOs emerge, where they have their own like automatic like treasuries being uh, facilitated by overledger and their own TVLs, so their total total value like locked, so to speak, in their applications. Then I think people really understand. Oh wait, this is like this is not vaporware. Um, this is real. Uh, this is substantial, and there is uh, a lot, there, there's a lot at stake here that is like being facilitated by this, and so people want pieces of that stake in order to participate. And again, this is part of the speculation utility cycle where the network has a yield per token, and and then as more people as the price rises for that token, the yield goes down because the proportion of the revenue to the actual cost of acquiring that revenue. Uh, it grows smaller 
Um, and, and so this is kind of like a self-regulating feedback loop where as the, as that revenue grows smaller, then the growth grows smaller until, uh, more innovations are, are created here and more revenue is created. And then that revenue increases and then the opportunity for people to buy the token back up increases as well. And so, uh, and this also provides a bulk work as well when the price goes down, when the network is live and there is discrete revenue per token, when the price of the token goes, goes down, then the opportunity of revenue per token as a percentage actually increases by quite a lot. And we saw this in many times over these, or in many different projects over the past, like um, after 2000, 2020, uh, the big crash, uh, there was a lot of DeFi projects that offered incredible TVLs that weren't even possible before because there was such a collapse in the price of their token. They were betting on themselves that these uh, that the yields you were getting now would sustain itself and continue on to the future. And you can see people like Frax actually, F FX, FXS, like they offered like some crazy yields, like 300, 400, 500 plus percentage uh, in order to incentivize staking on their network to push through this, uh, push through the huge bear, it was a massive bear. And then like the people that actually took that opportunity, they, um, they're not only getting that yield, but they're also getting now like some 10, 20 X on their initial uh, uh, investment as well. And so again, these kind of self-regulating feedback loops are only possible with like autonomous economies of which quant is going to help facilitate between the different chains at a scale that we haven't seen yet before. So um, yeah, <laughs> I, I said too much again. Yeah, 100% agree, Ghost. Um, thanks for the info. Uh, anyone else have anything else to add on a risk-related topic? Or as we approach in two and a half hour mark of this amazing conversation, we can open up uh, our Q&A discussion. If you guys are cool with it as well, just let me know. Yeah, uh, I have one last thing to add on risk because uh, I, I think that it's absolutely true. And if uh, you've been sitting here for the last two and a half hours, I, I think that you probably have some thoughts on this too um, out in the audience. But I believe a huge risk for quant is not being a part of this. I mean, it, it's so asymmetrical that the risk reward for what we're involved with is, is just so, <laughs> it, as Greg could put it, it's, it's just kind of silly right now the potential upside. And of course, this is not financial advice. It's completely speculative. And you know, you've been here for two and a half hours kind of understanding what's brought us to this point. But if, if we accept quant for what it is, um, a, a technology company that's ushering in the next iteration of internet, the entire blockchain internet is now possible because, or largely possible because of what quant's doing. If we accept this, and then we look at what is the QNT token currently valued at? What does that relative market cap look like in the crypto space right now? Um, the, the upside is just so unfathomably immense that the downside, of course, as with any investment, it can go to zero. So you have a 100% maximum potential loss. But um, in, in a, a speculative sense, the upside potential for QNT tokens could easily be that in the four or five digit percentile mark 
uh, increase in the, the fairly short term, whether that's three months, six months, 12 months, two years, um, the relative certainty provided with that type of uh, potential, to me, makes one of the biggest risks is not being a part of this. Um, I, I couldn't imagine <laughs> <laughs> missing this. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's like when you get interviewed and they're like, what's your biggest weakness? And you're like, I take too much pride in my work. <laughs> uh, sometimes sorry, I just man. work I too hard. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I think on that, that's a perfect transition to, to open it up for Q&A. And please, if you disagree with me, uh, ask questions. That's, that's what we're here for. Um, so as, as we open this up to the audience, I, I you know encourage everyone to think back over the last two and a half hours. What have we talked about? What have we maybe said that you weren't, you didn't agree with, or you want some clarif clarification on? And, uh, and now is the time to bring that out. Yeah, well, that's a perfect spin hanger and agree with you. So I just brought up uh, Crypto Gambino as a speaker. Thanks, man, for your patience, for sticking around for two and a half hours. Uh, greatly appreciated. Man, thanks for uh, educating me in that time. It was, a, it was an easy trade-off. <laughs> yeah, man, do you have a question? I do. Um, I have a couple real quick. Um, first of all, I've been following Quant for a really long time, and I think the world of what he's building – uh, Gilbert, that is. Um, I have a couple questions about. Well, first of all, I love the collab and don't don't collaborate, not compete attitude that he's bringing to the space because I think that creates more winners in the end for everybody, and I think that's going to prove to win out over the competition uh, aspect of the space. And then also, what do you think about like co companies like uh, Quant and like Hedera? And Ripple and companies like that. What what do you think will happen to the token price if companies like that go public, and like therefore there's a stock for them? Do you think that will take away from the market share for the value of the token? No. No. Okay. No. And then the other one I heard a long time ago. I heard like I understand that Quant doesn't have a blockchain. It's more of a blockchain operating system. And my question is. I heard that they were eventually going to build a block, their own blockchain. So, like, I don't know if that's something that's still on the table for them, or are they going to look to maybe migrate away from Ethereum, or are they pretty dead set on staying on the Ethereum network? Uh, I'll take this one. But uh, Ethereum is a problem for them because they, uh, what goes set level two, they, you have a lightning whack. Lightning network uh, like Bitcoin at the moment. Uh, Quant created a multi-chain version of that, which... Oh, Chris, why are you laughing? They created, which also reduces uh, F gas fees by 93%. So, the, oh, okay. once you're... Hmm. So they cre created yeah. a solution. So they pretty much created a solution for that already. It's just not uh in the version that i'm like thinking of it in possibly or could be but mm -hmm. also uh they have this technology which uh greg uh hinted at mlt which allows the token to be multi-ledger multi-ledger okay oh so the mlt was for the qnt token it wasn't for other tokens to okay i got you, know, you. i understand what you're it's, saying it's for both it could oh. be used for the quant token so oh awesome thank you i appreciate it. that clears up a lot 
Okay. Well, I mean, I, I want to go in a little bit more about that first uh, question he had as well. Uh, I didn't mean to cut you off there. When, when I say no, and I said it emphatically, I, I, it's more out of like excitement about like why no? Because like again, a utility token is not a security. Um, as much as the SEC would like to admit that it is. Um, and so, so an entity which is operating on a network, which is uh, like has this uh, utility token, can also have uh, equity on its balance sheet. So the utility token is just a contributing factor, one of the pillars on the balance sheet, uh, in addition to... Uh, anything they use to finance with a debt or anything else they need to finance with equity. Um, this is a key notion is a key part of a, a piece that I'm writing, which is about this new uh, kind of accounting system that DLTs are emblematic of that being triple entry accounting. And so, so yeah, that's a, it's a really good question. Like in, in short, like think of this, like networks can host many discrete entities which have different equities because the network offers a utility that each one of these uh, equity holding entities um, may use at any time. Um, so, you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I kind of, yeah, when you put it like that, it does broaden the level of understanding for me. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem, bro. No problem. And really quick, Ghost, if you can just clarify for all the listeners' word, they can find the final version of this piece that you're writing right now. That would be great because I'm sure there are a lot of people that will love to read that, myself included. I, I've got a medium. I'll, I'll post it there. It, it's going to take like a couple more weeks, I think. Um, but I'll, I'll plow through it, and it, it'll uh, it'll be matching my previous work, which is actually all about quant. Um, Max, did you read that yet? I saw this. I definitely added to my bookmarks just because there's been just so much information to go over through. So I would definitely read it. Yeah, I mean, it's just a gestalt as to like the strategic approach Quant is using to like um, what build what they built and, and bring it to the world. Um, and it talks about like kind of this world of like how every blockchain represents its own like. Uh, its own game theory. And when you can connect different games together, you kind of build out this like metaverse or this meta game, so to speak. Um, and so uh, that's a common meme at the moment, uh, like the metaverse namely, but m most people like the way Facebook uses it, it's not actually a metaverse, it's just their own digital universe, so to speak. It might be meta in the sense that they're uniting all like or Disney building a metaverse, like they're uniting all the different like pr proprietary like like stories that they own. But it's like if that's not interoperable, you're still having an issue. Um, so you need protocols to bridge all these different uh, digital islands to kind of create a true true ecosystem, an ecosystem of ecosystems. Um, but yeah, I'll I'll uh, I'll let you know. Um, I'll definitely post it on Twitter for everyone to see. Speaking of Facebook, I don't know if you guys have been uh, listening to Zuckerberg at all recently, but um, he hasn't shut up about interoperability. His last, uh, well, when he did the um, he did the Facebook Connect uh, presentation, mm. then mm. Uh, he also went on Gary Vee's podcast, and 
on the Facebook Connect in particular, he actually said that they're building an API to support interoperability. So I just kind of my my ears perked up. Ears a perked bit up. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then also just to, just briefly, just an, an extra thought about the idea of going public. I think um, it's super interesting. It's one that a couple of my friends brought up uh, when I was introducing them to this project because they're all traditional investors and they're like, this seems like a company that could go public. Like, what do you think about that? And it got me thinking a little bit and um, I looked into it to see, you know, is there any precedent for this? Like a, a publicly traded company that also has a token that's traded in the crypto markets. The only one I could find was Voyager. So there's a company Voyager Digital and uh, they trade on the US OTC markets and they also have a token. Uh, I don't have those to those tickers in front of me. Um, they're different, actually. I think VG... Uh, I'm going to butcher it. I forget what they're both are, but you can look up Voyager Digital. They have a token and a publicly traded company. So there is like some light uh, precedent for this. And I was watching uh, Kevin O'Leary, Mr. Wonderful, on Anthony Pompliano today. And he said that he thinks uh, that he really believes that these crypto companies um, are going to in uh, increasingly be just looked at as software companies and that they will end up becoming the 12th sector in the S&P as publicly traded companies as time goes on. So um, certainly something to think about as far as um, that opportunity. I think his lens is just like him and Mark Cuban don't have the right lens for this space. They, they don't, they, they cut their teeth on equities. They may understand tech as it stands, but this is a new, this really is a new paradigm. So you can't apply it's like applying those whole red flag laws to to cars and thinking that's a good way to regulate cars because you want to make them equal to horses. You know, it's just this is just something different. Um, but uh, may, maybe he's right. Maybe maybe temporarily. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's a whole we could get into. Uh, that's a whole different conversation. We got a couple of yeah. people up on the page, but <laughs> exactly. I would be, I would be careful to. Um, throw away the opinions of really of like smart, successful tech people just because they're not native blockchain people. You know, it probably usually only takes them a little while to get up to speed, and then they become you know thought leaders in their own right. So, um, sure, I increasingly like kind of listen to outsiders as they're getting in because they bring like a new perspective. For but sure. um, yeah, Max, do you want to uh, go on and and have or source D and Digeter? I don't know how to pronounce your name, but we got a couple other folks on stage here. Um, yeah, Max, take it, take it back. Yeah, I ju just wanted to say, Greg, that we definitely all of us probably can relate here. That every time when we hear the word interoperability, just we just start paying attention and really focus on what's going to happen next. So I definitely can relate to this. Well, I just added Source D uh, as a speaker. Do you have a question? While Source D is thinking, maybe uh, the other guy has a question. I, I'm afraid to pronounce this name. Digeritis? I, I'm not sure how to say this. <laughs> My I think apologies. Degeneritis, I think. He's got a severe yes. case of the degens. <laughs> yep, let's go over there. Now, do you have a question? Unmute yourself if you have a question. Well, while both of them are, th are thinking, maybe Max, what about you, man? Do yeah, you have a question? I've got a question for you guys. G go for it. Um, yeah, it's just a quick one regarding the circulating supply currently of Quant. So I believe we're at 13.4 million and the maximum is 14.6. Uh, 
So I was just wondering if there's a plan behind uh, when those other tokens are uh, meant to be released or if they're just going to stay in the treasury. Um, so I guess I'll just refer back to the whole notion of a company using assets on a balance sheet. So Quant um, has sold Q&T in the past to fund their operations. This is like for payroll, for, um, uh, I guess, like infrastructure opportunities to fund development, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and this, this is, will continue, um, especially as the OVN goes live and as uh, so license fees are paid in QNT. And then also uh, any transactions that are facilitated in the OVN, uh, there's some nominal percentage of a percentage amount that goes into the QNT treasury for validating and facilitating uh, the, the flow of, uh, of computation across the OVN, the Overledger network. Um, so that in that way, um, you, they're making the circular economy where um, they get revenues in, in form of uh, Q&T. They can convert that Q&T into dollars or, or pounds or euros or what have you for operations. And then uh, they recoup this from uh, the, the fees that they're taking from the OVN and the licenses, uh, as aforementioned. Um, so, yeah, that's, uh, that's basically the model by which they're going to, to use this. Okay. Yeah. Thanks a lot for that, mate. Let's clear it up. Cheers. Cheers, man. No problem. Thanks, Miss, for the question. Uh, I just added Bella. Bella, do you have a question? Bella, do you have a question? Bella, I'm sorry. Uh, no, no, it's okay. <laughs> you're coming up on stage. Uh, make sure on the bottom left, you're going to see a microphone icon. You're going to have to press that to unmute in order to speak. Thanks, Greg. All right, let's keep moving. I just added a cryptdrip.eth as a speaker. Do you have a question? Go ahead and unmute yourself. Yes. Uh, good evening, good day, uh, all um, new to the crypto space, maybe about a, a year or so. Um, just found... Uh, stumbled again on Quant in about late September, early October, and immediately aped in, as they say. Um, really good project. Love it. Um, I think Ghost just made a mention. I'm not sure. I'm just looking at your transcript uh, here on uh, Twitter. He said the upside potential for Quant tokens could easily be that in the four or five-digit percentile mark increase. Um, I just wanted to, you know, elaborate on that or, and, um, just thank you guys for doing these spaces. I look forward to part three and, um, yeah, that'll, that'll do it. Thanks guys. I, uh, I bet that made some ears perk up before we dive into that. Uh, again, <laughs> to reiterate, this is complete speculation here. This is not invested in ice, uh, not financial advice. This is just a group of passionate people that are really excited about this technology and that want to talk about it. But um, from a, a speculative standpoint, 
why do I or why do we think that there could be a lot of value opportunity? Uh, one, let's let's look at where quant is. Um, right now, probably the, the best tool to value a blockchain or to value a protocol or a crypto project is to look at the market cap, which is just a combination of the price multiplied by the circulating supply. And it's, it's a relative value, and it's not the only way or the fully encompassing way to create a value, but it does give us like a, a relative means of comparing the value of different things. Um, and it is something that is pretty easy to work with when we talk about how the price could change. So QNT, if the price goes up twofold, well, then the market cap goes up twofold. So right now, Quant is it's sitting just over $2 billion market cap. And um, that puts it, I want to say in like the low 60s or so in the Uh, in the low 60s. He cut out again. I doubt. Uh, his his Twitter Spaces app was sacrificed so mine could live. <laughs> they don't want you guys to like be great with this, man. Just keep going with it, man. Keep going. Love it. <laughs> See, there's uh, someone working behind the scenes because they don't want us talking about that. No, just kidding. Um, Quant is currently in the like the low 60s or so in the top 100 for market cap right now. Um, and when we compare it to something that is seeing like a, a good amount of retail use, something that's seeing a good amount of um, utility, if you will, we start to look at change like uh, Avalanche or something like Solana. And you know th these are top 10, top 20 chains that see um, market caps tenfold, 20fold that of Quant that are really, as we discussed earlier, just these really big ecosystems, these, these giant uh, walled ecosystems of value. So the potential that Quant is bringing to the table by being able to bridge these gaps and allowing blockchains to work outside of their respective ecosystems for the first time ever holds truly enormous value. It is like the fundamental pillar to unlocking the value of crypto and DLT at large. If we recognize that quant is going to be one of, if not the major player allowing that, um, the, the thing that we have to address next is, okay, well, how do we capture value from that? If we know that quant will be facilitating billions and trillions of transactions and billions and trillions of dollars in volume um, for both enterprise and public facing applications, uh, it simply comes down to what's called the tokenomics, or essentially the, the way the code is programmed to use the tokens. And in Quant's case, they have exceptional tokenomics. They have been very thoroughly designed uh, in such a way to make sure that every player in the ecosystem is properly incentivized for, uh, for both short and, and long-term applications. What that means is that as, as Quant's technology is used and gains adoption. The volume of usage will dictate more usage of QNT, which will in turn create scarcity of the QNT token, uh, which is that utility-driven value outside of speculation. So in short, a really easy way of saying, why do we think that the, the return could be in the four-digit potential and the five-digit percent pretend, uh, potential in the, in the fairly short term? It's because what Quant is enabling is, is a trillion dollar value. I mean, it, it's unlocking distributed ledger technology in crypto for the first time really at scale. And 
anything that is even slightly comparable in utility volume are, are typically projects that see 10 to 100 fold increase in their respective price based off of that utility. And we really only do have small examples in the space right now. So when we zoom out to something as big as the structure and standard for the next generation of internet, the fundamental backbone enabling the connections of internet scale technology in blockchain for the first time, the utility just becomes absolutely unfathomable. And even if you put that stuff aside and we just look at the short term and the crypto space, the value, even just the speculative value alone of this type of technology becoming increasingly public um, and eventually getting to a place where we're seeing direct interaction and QT payments from the general QT or from the crypto public, that's something that will almost inevitably generate enormous returns um, in value because the QT token will be necessary. Like if you want to use this technology, you'll have to use QT. Did, did you lag out Hungarian or did you finish? I, I was going to open it up for anyone else. Yeah. Okay. I couldn't tell because you're still unmuted. Um, yeah. I, I guess the way that I attack this question is uh, pretty simply. So I've, I've kind of narrowed it down to a few reasons why I think Quant can get into the five figures. Um, first is this. So I, I compare it directly to Bitcoin basically, because you can look at Bitcoin's price. We're well into the five figures. Now, why do I think, quant's price can get to bitcoin's price um one the use case is larger okay so we've outlined kind of basically even if you just look at finance alone um if you look at how the qnt token is used uh we're going to have massive amounts of utility in driving uh global financial markets literally from end to end when it comes to uh you know global remittances cross-border payments cbdc's uh digital exchanges etc um, just that use case alone, I think, is bigger than store value uh, because of the, the volume that will happen on a daily basis. Trillions of dollars a year um, will be moved across Overledger. Uh, the supply is less than Bitcoin. So Bitcoin, 21 million, Quant, 14.6 million. So more demand, lower supply. That in itself um, shows you know, the, the supply and demand curve. But then I also think it has a couple of edges in terms of regulation where while Bitcoin will be adopted, certainly in certain countries, as we're seeing in certain areas of Latin America, uh, et cetera, we also know that certain countries like China, for instance, are more hesitant and there are going to be bans on Bitcoin and there's going to be um, just not hurdles that I think it won't be able to overcome, but certainly hurdles nonetheless, where I think Quant has positioned itself that it will be globally accepted and already is kind of globally accepted uh, at that large scale. So from a regulation standpoint, I think uh, Quant has no headwinds. And then um, as we enter this year, I think the narrative around interoperability is so strong that from a speculation standpoint, uh, we can get some uh, juice behind the price once it starts to go. So uh, for those reasons, I think you can actually compare on a medium-term timescale. Uh, when I say that, I guess I'm talking about maybe five to 10 years, five to eight years. You can look at Quant's price directly at Bitcoin's price, and it can be comparable, where you know a lot of these 
tokens, it's really tough to do that because of the supply and people don't understand uh, kind of the, um, you know, the, the, the token price, there's a word, there's a phrase for it that's slipping my mind, but kind of, um, you know, that a, a, a dollar Cardano is not going to go to a $50,000 Bitcoin because there's billions of Cardano, right? Uh, tokenomics, where, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, tokenomics, but um, unit bias. The scale. Unit bias. Okay. Um, so basically tied directly to supply, but because quant supply is so low and the use case is so big, um, and even if you don't believe it can go to five figures, um, the fact that it's trading at $160 right now is absurd. Um, so that's kind of my, my idea around price. You know, you know, I just wanted to add one thing. Like once we were talking about price, uh, I mentioned before that I'm not a big f- fan of uh, price conversations, but I'll add that it's just so funny like, to see a lot of comments like on Twitter or anywhere else. People like complaining. They're like, oh, there is nothing going on with the price and then there's no movement. And well... Tell me, guys, where uh, the price of Quan was this time last year? And they just zoom out and see $12. Exactly. So just zoom out and check what's going on and just keep holding. Yeah, guys, Quan was 10 bucks at the turn of the new year into 2021, and it went to $400 by September. So the fact that we're at 160 bucks right now is like a completely normal correction especially in crypto where we regularly see 70 80 percent pullbacks after parabolic moves so um if anything uh this is an accumulation period and you know if if when we look back um in a couple of years this you're gonna wish (laughs) um that you took advantage of 160 dollars in my opinion i i I want i want to take this opportunity and say that while i don't disagree with what y'all are saying I, I think that it's better to put your money to work than just sit on it and do nothing. I mean, there's a reason why, you know, um, Christ talked about the parable, the talents, you know, like you're, we're given these things to uh, produce with them. And so that's why I, I think that in turn, it's like, like the, the main goal you should be seeking here is not just hold and get gains, but but hold until the network goes live and stake these tokens and earn with them as a meaningful part, contributing computational resources to the OVN. Um, and because of that, that's, uh, that's a, it's a superior approach. And, and funny enough, I was actually doing some research about um, uh, inflation recently um, and how, how wealth either, you know, decay, how wealth basically decays over time. And what's funny is that uh, wealth itself decays at a much faster rate and a much more substantial rate than revenue does over time. And so Q&T as an asset that you can stake for, for revenue, um, I think is exceedingly value, more valuable um, than just um, price gains alone. It's probably the biggest question we get in Telegram as well, right? When staking, when staking. And that's uh, coming. And that will be another impact on supply. Uh, I think a lot of people are dying to stake their QNT, uh, secure the network, get some rewards. And um, we've seen a lot of these other tokens. Uh, you know, when you have a community that's looking to stake, 
you can get between 50 to 70% of all supply staked. And, you know, that just, it's really scary to think. I mean, if you were in or, or if you were watching quant from June to September, like that three month ish swing, three, four months, I mean, the, the velocity at which it moves because of the low supply is quite astounding. But yeah, we can stop shilling price now, but I just need to get that off my channel. Yeah, velocity is important, but go ahead, Jeff. One thing to point out, though, it's not normal staking like the rest of the level ones. You get paid by fees by users of the network. So there's no inflation in uh, quant. I think, yeah, that's a, a nice way of saying you're don't expect double digit, triple digit APYs. We don't know what they're going to be, but they're likely going to be low because they're based purely on utility, not on introducing new coins to this to the system. Well, and, and something one of the dirty secrets about DeFi is that like the what is it six figure like APYs you get from a rebase token like Olympus are completely imaginary because well, not completely but mainly imaginary because one it's uh you they're you're diluting your own asset that you're staking for yield there you're getting more ohm by staking ohm but but two also the supply itself is rebasing according to certain inflows as well so um <laughs> yeah for quant it's just it's all real Yep, 100%. Well, I see Don is a speaker. He's been patiently waiting. Don, do you have a question? Yes, I do. Thank you, Max, and thank you, everybody, um, for putting this together today. Um, really dropping some serious off in both parts one and two, um, not to mention everything you guys have done. Uh, on behind the scenes and on the back end for the community, um, just want to say thank you, uh, first off. Um, my question really revolves around uh, community engagement and uh, really how the community can be uh, really an asset um, to the quant team um, and <clears throat> to Gilbert's version or uh, Gilbert's vision overall. Um, what, what, what do you see as some uh, potential opportunities for the community to get more involved Um especially as we're eagerly awaiting uh, the community release of OVN. Uh, I'll, I'll take that. Um, <laughs> well, one, again, there's uh, staking to be done um, once that facility is uh, uh, here. Uh, two, um, you can participate in the community. You can join the Telegram groups, and there's multiple. Uh, you can uh, follow their Twitter um, three, there is a uh, an SDK for interacting with Overledger and some videos showing some introductory demo applications of how you use multiple chains and cold in a code in a multi-chain world. And then uh, finally, actually, um, there is a brewing uh, Q&T DAO, actually, that is working on kind of collating community desires, thoughts, and just general input into one coherent platform uh, for the sake of the greater, again, Q&T holder demographic. Uh, 
Um, and uh, uh, Don's a member of that. I'm a member of that. Um, it's still small, but uh, and <laughs> I've taken a break from it, but I'm about to get back into it. Of uh, we'll see what we can we can build with it. Uh, but at least from my perspective, that's uh, that's all I can say from the top of my head. Hey guys, uh, anyone else have uh, anything to add? Angirin? Um, <clears throat> it's it's tough to talk about some of this stuff because we don't have all the answers yet. Like previously mentioned, 2022, 2022 is going to be a big year for Quant. And I believe that this year we're going to get a lot of public-facing information that's going to add a lot of clarity here. But what we do know is that there's an entire ecosystem of public-facing value and utility coming for the QNT token. Um, there are hundreds and hundreds of use cases for the QNT token, and that alone is constantly evolving. Yeah, Gilbert has explicitly stated multiple times the intention to essentially have QNT as the fundamental network currency for this network of networks that's powering and connecting ecosystems. Having it all powered and tied in QNT means that as these use cases come out, we'll learn a lot more. And right now it's tough to answer this question. It, it really is a, a pretty ambiguous answer beyond staking and basic things like that. But it, it certainly does seem that in the relatively near future, we will be seeing a lot more information on what exactly you'll be able to do with your QNT in addition to staking. I think it, I think Gilbert would probably say build, just um, you know, try and try it out and build and tell your developer friends. Um, you know, Quan announced uh, in passing. Uh, Gilbert put in Telegram that. Uh, Quant will be releasing a, I forget exactly how it was phrased, but basically like a course on how to use Overledger uh, with in partnership with a globally renowned or what do you say, world renowned university. So uh, we don't know exactly which university it is, but um, when he says world renowned, I'm positive they will be world renowned. I think we all think MIT is kind of the leader there, but I don't think that's a, a shoe in by any stretch. Um, but something like that, well, there, there will be uh a certification course brought to you by Quant in partnership with a world-renowned university on how to use Overledger. So, you know, for me, the way that I've found uh, to be of service is, first of all, just learning as much as possible. I still feel like I know nothing about this project compared to like what its potential is and what it really can do and um, the technical side of things. And I just always feel like I have more to learn about money markets and all this stuff. So, uh, I think just learning and being able to speak, like when you talk about your favorite projects or your favorite, whatever investment you're in, crypto or not, um, people take you more seriously when you actually know what you're talking about. Like winners can see when other people are winners and winners see when other people are losers. Um, I can tell when someone's just making shit up or when they actually have some basis and they've done their research. So something you can do um is just learn more and that way you are a more valuable resource when people have questions or when you decide to bring it up to somebody. Um, and then, you know, I have a bit of a following on clubhouse. So I speak there. So if you have any, you know, social platforms, maybe bring it up, uh, you know, and um, just educate other people. 
Um, so learning and educating and, and building to the best of your ability, that would be my suggestion. I saw Jeff uh, unmuted his mic. Jeff, did you have anything to add, uh, add here? No, Greg touched upon it himself later on, so it was good. All right, sounds good. Uh, if no one else has anything else to add, maybe we can um, add Max as a speaker and see if he has a, another question. Max? Hi, guys. Um, yeah, I just have uh, one more question about the, the gateways. Um, so as I understand it, like these will be quite technical things to set up. So, you know, if, you, if you're not going to set up your own gateway, you'll have to effectively stake through someone else's. Um, is there like any element of trust that you need in the person who's running the gateway or how does it work? Is it safe to have your quant there? Um, yeah, there's a, an element of risk there for sure. Um, being that there are slashing conditions based on, um, let's say you accept or a gateway accepts a job and then is unresponsive. In, in that instance, then the gateway, which basically has a deposit of QNT at stake relative to the job that it's executing, would receive a slash uh, some percentage of that stake uh, for that. And I, I would, I, and again, these numbers and these percentages can vary, but uh, I would anticipate that it would uh, increase, the, the number of QNT would increase if malicious activity was detected um so you basically the network is selecting for uh operators that are have uh high uptime and have uh high integrity um so if you do delegate which and on top of that you when you delegate you're probably giving up like anywhere from one to ten percent of your your revenues um, to the gateway operator you're delegating to, um, but that you know that that may not be the case, and I can see some game theoretical situations in which it's actually zero or even negative, but that's uh, for another time. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it's uh, you're you're going to want to choose someone that's dependable if you can't run a gateway yourself. Okay, yeah, thank you. That makes sense. Cheers. Cheers. Yeah, I look forward to hearing more information about this. Um, I just added Isaac as a speaker. Do you have a question? Yeah, thanks, guys. Appreciate the time that you spent on this. Uh, Long-time holder of Quant, really like the ecosystem and obviously what they're doing. Um, I had a quick question for you guys. You may or may not be able to answer it. Just came over from a, a DAG space recently. Um, knowing that they have the quant partnership, two things. One, it seems to me as if the, the DAG ecosystem is doing more cross-chain work, uh, but confusing it with multi-chain. Could you guys kind of just talk about the synergies between the ecosystems and a little bit of the differences as well? Because one of the things that DAG does um, is essentially being able to validate off-chain data similar to quant. So I, I don't know if you can touch on that subject at all, but I'd just love to hear your thoughts. Thanks. Well, f first, first we gotta untangle like, like we gotta untangle the difference between cross-chain and multi-chain. Like, what do you mean by cross-chain and multi-chain? 
and and like how are they confusing it and then secondly like we also have to like let people know this is a really complicated answer because a lot of people here may not know about constellation uh constellations an oracle network that can be thought of as an oracle network uh similar to uh chain link but the main difference lies into how constellation builds a coherent network out of the various attesters of data like like constellations very are trying to be much more decentralized than uh, uh, Chainlink, whereas like Chainlink is kind of uh, much more federated and built on classic BFT-style consensus. Um, but if you could speak on the difference between cross-chain and multi-chain and the way you think they're confusing it, that would be helpful. Yeah, so so I was just over in one of their spaces, um, and they were speaking about, like, for instance, their Lattice Exchange um, and how they were going to be able to bring Ethereum over um, to Lattice Exchange to do exchanges and essentially have feeless Ethereum. Um, and so that was one of the things that they said was going to be uh, more so multi-chain, but it seems as if that that would be more of a cross-chain implication. Um, yeah, and then, yeah, that's and then, absolutely right. And then also, too, I, I was asking them about the um, the Quant and DAG partnership um, and just for them to expound upon it a little bit more. And from what it seemed to them, what they were saying to me, which kind of created a conundrum in my own mind, was that the Constellation did not use Quant at all for interoperability whatsoever, um, which I was like, wait a minute, what? what? What are you guys saying here? Um, and they kind of went on to expound upon that, that because they're able to validate data that's off chain um, and from other networks that they didn't need quant as an interoperability piece, which kind of I was like, well, then why are they partnered with them? Um, so I just wanted to touch base with you guys and kind of get your feedback on that. So maybe I could develop a better understanding of what's going on here. So uh, this is a very difficult thing to answer because uh Constellation, um, what they're trying to do is very ambitious. And so they have a very specific lens of looking at um, other projects and other pieces of, uh, um, pieces of the puzzle, so to speak. Uh, so if I could clarify, because uh, I've, I've been in both ecosystems, um, Constellation uh, would view Quant as a provider of an attestation from the set of validators that Quant uh, has accumulated over time. And so that's how um, they would attest that Quant is attesting about these certain validators. So like um, other blockchains, for instance, that it connects to via its API function or other uh, legacy so, systems maybe? So I, I would think that the lens that we want to look at here is that the nodes that are connected to these blockchains, that's what Constellation can provide attestations from. And you know how you build coherent notions of that data um, is up to the person building the application who's sourcing that data. Um, and so uh, for, for Quant, I mean, they don't need to change really anything they're doing. It's they're focused on DLT, DLT interoperability. And they have a very specific domain and niche to provide such a perspective from. Um, it's, yeah, so they, they don't need to achieve 
so okay constellation doesn't need to achieve interoperability between any of its any of the people who are testing data on its network just like how uh just like how polkadot or yeah how polkadot doesn't need to provide any more interoperability than what it already does between different parachains that it's running on its own ecosystem. Again, I'm so sorry, it gets very complex. Please bear with me here. Um, so, so and, and again, the main appeal about Quant is that it can provide a, a focused nexus point of interoperability and overlay of many different approaches to the different game theories and the respective consensus systems underneath um, at, at scale. Um, and so, and so that, in in that sense, it's like yes, you can achieve interoperability without quant. I mean, that's absolutely true. People already do, um, but especially when you are attempting a bridging solution rather than end-to-end -end interoperability solution that is overlaying the nodes themselves, um, then uh, there can be flaws there. But I'm I'm actually pretty unfamiliar uh, with how Lattice itself is achieving this, so I may be speaking out of my depth. Um, one thing I just wanted to quick quickly interject. Thank you for the the high level answer. That's actually exactly what I was looking for. Uh, so I appreciate it, and please don't apologize for making it complex. That's that's absolutely perfect. Um, the second thing too, as well. So from what I'm hearing, for instance, it's difficult for some people to build state channels. Right, which is what um, Constellations Network uses as its validation set um, for their proof of reputable observation to basically validate these outside data sources. But with Quant's developer kit, they could essentially create that connectivity to obviously Constellation Network in a very simple way, giving other people access to that data set and function. Cre increasing the overall connectivity and interoperability and also increasing the scale which MDAPs could be written because they can pull a lot more data in from other sources. Yeah, bingo. Great. Thank you. And then also to Hungarian, I think you were about to say something as well. So was, I just really appreciate you guys. Thank you. Yeah, man. And, and Ghost, I mean, he's obviously going to be the one to nail the technical answer here. I'm just reading the Constellation and Quant Network technical white paper integration. Uh, you can pull it up off both their sites. And in the overview, it, it specifically mentions that this integration will be powered by Constellation's Hypergraph and Quant's Overledger interoperability capabilities. Um, so a couple specific references into Overledger providing interoperability for Hypergraph there. And it goes all throughout the white paper. And then it also goes on later and refers to Constellation specifically as an OVN connector. So uh, I'm probably going to leave it there for that. But um, that is just going off the technical white paper. Great. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate it. Uh, definitely helped parse out my understanding there of both of their functions and just in general. Uh, it seems like Constellation will be a big piece to the puzzle and having, a, I guess, another set of oracles um, added into the mix that increase the overall MDAPs and scalability of the things that are happening on the OVN network. Can, can I give a crazy analogy? Please do. Please do. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so Constellation has a kind of fractal consensus. So they're really excited about pursuing like 
a plurality of like different dimensions and everyone loves multiverses. I mean, anyone saw like Spider-Man enter the multiverse can attest to that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, great movie, by the way. Um, but I-, I want to say that um, multiverses are great and there's a place for the, uh, for, for this notion, but like, m- if there is some prime universe that holds ultimate uh, primordial uh, authority there. And so in that sense, um, I think Constellation, in their attempt at trying to access all the different multiverse of different data, um, they, they're going to kind of form around these principal seats of strategic power that form the, uh, the prime universe. And that's kind of what Quant is aiming at in their attempt at, you know, uh, being such a key infrastructural uh, piece of uh, traditional, what was traditional finance. So it's a little crazy analogy, but that's how I view it. No, got it. And thank you for making that analogy, too, as well. It's it's very interesting what they're doing. The fact that they can validate off-chain data, I think, is absolutely massive. But more so than that partnership connecting it to everything else, uh, it's, it's pretty interesting not having to run uh, Solidity smart contracts, which we all know are so limiting uh, in, in various different scopes, and being able to program smart contracts in Java. So, uh, yeah. Well, I think at this point I don't have any additional requests uh, to ask any questions, so... I'm not sure if you want to guys uh, keep going. I hate closing spaces because space has been pretty good to go for the past 30 minutes. Yeah. So do you guys have yeah. anything else to add or we can just uh, wrap it up? Um, up to you guys. What do you feel like? I know we've been going for almost three and a half hours. So just just when we thought two and a half hours were crazy, here's three and a half hours for you guys. <laughs> Well, I mean, what, what better way to end it on a big bang? <laughs> um, thank you for hosting me as usual, Max, and uh, thank you all for listening. Um, as usual, you can find me in the Quampy Lounge, um, which is uh, one of our Telegram channels uh, in, in the future. So take it easy, y'all. Yeah, absolutely. Gus, thank you so much for all your answers, uh, all great information. Uh, just wanted to say thanks so much for the community. Uh, uh, I've been... Uh, exceptionally uh, excited about all the connections that I made, about the feedback that we received after hosting this part one Spaces event that was great. Uh, I will be releasing the recording to part two uh, in the next couple of days. So yeah, and I'll I'll upload in the same Spotify channel as I uploaded part one. So stay tuned for this. And uh, I see that a community is already getting excited for potential part three event so if i will be able to force ghost to participate for this <laughs> that would be great i know he's been having a lot of technical difficulties today but um overall i thought that was great so yeah now you guys know after sticking for the past two and a half hours why i call these guys fantastic four because just the information and the alpha that they provide just uh, truly unmatched so really honored to share the stage with all of them and yeah, stay tuned for more if you guys have anything else to add. No, I just want to thank everyone for taking the time of their day. If you've sat through from now uh, all the way from the beginning, last three and a half hours, I commend you. And I, I thank you so much for 
being a part of the community and being a part of the conversation. Recognize that this doesn't end here. Uh, in fact, this is the very beginning. We, we are very much serious when we talk about 2022 being the year of public-facing infrastructure for quants. Um, the noise is only going to get louder in this space. Uh, so like Gilbert says, watch this space. Yeah, just want to echo uh, gratitude to everybody here. Thank you for listening and participating. Great questions. Uh, everyone up on stage, y'all killed it as usual. No surprise there. Max, appreciate you uh, hosting this, organizing everything, lending your audience to Quant. And uh, yeah, excited for as many more of these as you guys want to do. have nothing to add to that. Thanks for having me. Thanks for hosting this. And uh, are you going to drop that big bang, Ghost? <laughs> no, no, not this time. Uh, but again, I just want to say, Max, Hungarian, Jeff, Greg, all of you are my personal Fantastic Four. Um, so uh, each one of you brings something very unique to this table. And it's a pleasure to be on the stage with you. So I look forward to uh, next time. All right. Perfect. Thank you so much, guys. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Take care.